Hello, my name is Joe Fricky, and welcome to the 12th episode of Movie Changeup, where every week two people go head-to-head pitching reboots to movies we all love and love to hate, but with a little added twist. Because every week there are also new rules they must follow. One rule per movie, and you can't use a rule more than once. Now, to help me determine the winner in today's head-to-head matchup is last week's host and judge, my consulting judge, why don't you introduce yourself? My name is Bobby Mitchell, and uh, I've been on the show quite a bit. It's kind of nice to be the consulting judge and just sit back and uh, hear these pitches and give my input. So uh, I'm excited. All right. And now we have two competitors today looking for a win. You may recognize our first competitor from his previous appearances. He currently has an 0-2 record. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, it's Tristan back again, hoping to clear that 0-2 record, like Joe said. I'd love to just get one win down and start getting my wins back together. Uh I'm really hyped for the episode, though. It's all horror movies, and if you can tell by my shirt that I'm a pretty big horror movie fan, it's it's spooky season, so I'm ready to kick it off with some great horror movies, at least on my side. <laughs> all right, and our second competitor is making his first appearance on the podcast tonight, but you may recognize him from his behind-the-scenes work on the Broken Hearts Gallery, wow. now in theaters, or his work in the upcoming FX series, Why the Last Man, based on wow. the graphic novel. Or from the Hallmark script he and I wrote together about Santa's son rediscovering his love for Christmas after reconnecting with his college girlfriend. And then the two of us were immediately told that Hallmark isn't making movies about Santa anymore. So why don't you introduce yourself? Wow. What a lovely introduction. I thought that was so nice. It's like my IMDB page. I appreciate it. The whole time I've known you, I thought your last name was Frick. Never knew it was Fricky. I never would have known to pronounce that. Uh, What's up, y'all? Uh, I'm here to make sure that Tristan stays losing because everyone loves a good streak. We had The Undertaker in WrestleMania. So I just want to see how far we can push Tristan. How many times will he keep coming back on this show before getting a win, before he just get, gives up completely? So I'm excited to see what happens today. You know, a streak is only as good as when you break it. So I'm pretty sure I'm here to break the streak now. All right. All right, and uh, before we start, if you're listening to us through a podcast app, go to YouTube and find this episode of Movie Change Up. Give us a thumbs up, a comment, and subscribe to our channel. If you're watching us on YouTube, go to your favorite podcast app, download this episode, and give us a rating and review. If you think we gave you a five-star podcast, give us a five-star review. If you think we gave you a four, a three, a two, or even a one-star podcast, help us out and still give us that five-star review. If you're watching live, feel free to comment, and we will respond during the stream. Uh, now I'll start by reading today's movies and we have a theme today's, uh, our two competitors decided to go with horror movies through the decades. And so representing the 1950s is the blob from 1958 representing the sixties is psycho from 1960 representing the seventies is when a stranger called from when a stranger calls from 1979, uh, representing the thing or representing the 1980s is the thing from 1982. Representing the 90s is Tremors from 1990. Representing the 2000s is Paranormal Activity from 2007. And representing the 2010s is Slender, Slender Man from 2018. Maybe that's, one day I'll learn to read. Cinema classic Yeah, that's right so there. disgraceful, but I'm happy about it. It really wraps up the 2010s of horror movies. <laughs> Bobby, would you like to read us the rules for today's episode? Yeah, let's see. So the rules for today are one must include the cast of grown-ups, one must be set in space, one must include a character made famous by Brad Pitt, one must be a Guillermo del Toro movie, one must include all Harry Potter actors, 
Uh, one must be set in the COVID-19 lockdown. And finally, one must include the great Polly Shore. <laughs> All right. And before we start, I have one last piece of business to take care of. If you watched last week's episode, there was a decision made that I vehemently disagreed with. And that is that John Rambo does not belong in a superhero movie, even a superhero movie in the tone of Amazon's The Boys. And I'm here to prove that John Rambo can be anywhere. He can be in a movie with superheroes, and he can even be on this podcast. And so I have determined from this day forward, anytime me and Bobby are on a podcast together, I am going to wear this John Rambo wig to <laughs> prove to Bobby that John Rambo can be anywhere. Hey, fair enough. You know what? If, if that gets you to wear wow. a silly wig all the time, I'll take that. You look the part. Wow. Yeah, if for podcast listeners, he's got a fantastic <laughs> long black wig on with a great pink headband going. Definitely, got hey, it's a red headband. Damn it! Oh, are you pink are you me. sure that you're John Rambo and not like a gay '70s fitness instructor? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure, but you know what? I'm not because it's in my at my expense. I'll leave it. He can wear that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Looks all like right, a creepy yeah. character. It does. Uh, all right, and now we've determined who starts before the show, and I believe Tristan won that. And I believe he decided to go with Tremors to start. And so I'm going to read a little description on Tremors. And so Tremors uh, got an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Wikipedia says it's an American comedy film. Let me see, I just dropped my phone. Uh, just off to a great start. Wikipedia says it's an American horror, horror comedy film. Uh, tired of their dull lives in the small desert town of Perfection, Nevada, repairman Val Mickey and Earl Bassett try to skip town. However, they happen upon a series of mysterious deaths and a concerned seismologist, Rhonda, studying unnatural readings below the ground. With the help of an eccentric survivalist couple, Bert and Heather Gummer, the crew fights for survival against giant worm-like monsters hungry for human flesh. And I believe Tristan said Mason would go first. So Mason... What is your pitch for Tremors? All right. Well, I didn't want to do too much to change the core ideas behind Tremors because Tremors is is truly one of the best horror comedies probably ever made. It's severely underrated and underwatched. But I decided to use the rule that I think was pretty goddamn obvious. Include a character made famous by Brad Pitt. And that character is going to be Cliff Booth. So... For my pitch, the year's 1980, about 10 years after the Charles Manson incident that we all know from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, Cliff Booth has retired to the small town of Perfection, Nevada, along with another former stuntman, Randy, played by Kurt Russell. So replacing Kevin Bacon and his partner, we've got uh, Brad Pitt and Kurt Russell. Randy initially hated Cliff. You saw the way they uh, conflicted in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But he had a run-in where his wife went missing. So him and Cliff bonded over that. And together, they kind of went to lay low in the small desert town. Now, I don't want to change too much for the plot for this one. It's going to unfold in a very similar way. We want things to happen. But we get the added excitement of having stuntmen do a lot of the action so when a worm bursts through the ground you can see brad pitt beat the shit out of it like it's uh, a small asian fighter 
Like you all, you all really appreciate the character of Cliff Booth because we didn't really get to see too much of him in action besides that one scene. This movie will give you the opportunity to do that. There's also core characters that I wanted to keep in, in the, this movie from the original, and that would be the Gummers. If anyone remembers the Gummers, they are from the great scene where the, the worm bursts through the wall, and it's basically every redneck American's wet dream having all their guns sitting right there for them. So I want Burton Heather Gummer to be played by George Clooney and Julianne Moore. And for seismologist Rhonda Carter, I'm thinking Ronan. The, the great actress whose name is unpronounceable. And for the director, because this is a fantasy and I can pick whatever director I want, who better to direct Cl- Cliff Booth and an action comedy horror than Tarantino himself? That's where I'll leave my pitch. All right. Uh, Tristan, what is your Tremors pitch? Well, for my Tremors pitch, I decided to lean into the Western kind of tropes of the original movie and the Western archetypes. So I made it a Western set in the 1870s, which is written in, and is written and directed by David Milt, who did Deadwood. So clearly he has a good eye for these kind of like pretty Western kind of towns. And uh, the rule I use is that I'm featuring Pauly Shore in the cast. <laughs> we'll get to the great Pauly Shore in just a couple sentences here. So a train station is under construction as the railways are being built to connect the town of Whitechapel, South Dakota to the larger and growing Western of America. Chris Pine plays Valentine McCree. He's a new face in town who works on the uh, who comes in to uh, inst- inspect the railroad. He works for a railroad company. And Timothy Oliphant plays Burt Gummer. He's a local mercenary in town who served in the Civil War and now works on the railroad. And Nick Cage plays Earl Bassett, who's a local outlaw who makes trouble in the town, you know, once in a while robs a bank, once in a while, you know, steals some money or some food from travelers. He's kind of the outlaw who lives on the outskirts of the town. Ian McShane is Ed Deems. He's a local sheriff who's an isolationist and hates newcomers and really is resisting to this Western expansion that's coming. And Paulie Shore plays Nestor. He's a barkeep. He's kind of this white trash kind of burly fighter guy who always who's always trying to argue with people in the bar but he has sort of a heart of gold he's sort of the comedic relief of the of the group here so newcomer valentine mccree arrives in Whitechapel to inspect the slow construction of their railroad and there he meets oliphant oliphant's gummer uh he's he tells uh valentine that the sheriff ordered them to stop construction because the railroad was going was experiencing some strange tremors and they were having some some uh, collapses and accidents on the railroad caused by these tremors. So the sheriff is once again played by Ian McShane, and he assure, he confirms that and tells him that, you know, nothing we can do. We got to shut down the railroad. What are you supposed to do? I guess you should leave the town. You know, he's he's very grumpy. He hates outsiders. He's trying to keep them out. So we get this kind of debate between the two of them, and that's what Milt does really well is these kind of talking scenes. So I want to get some of them throughout where Valentine and Deems kind of just debate the morals of Western expansion and the, the growing future that's coming to get them. And the local bar- barkeep was again, the, the wonderful Pauly Shore. He's Nestor. He tells them about these strange sightings people have been having out in the desert. And people don't believe him. They say, oh, it's just a mirage. People are just seeing things. But he says, Earl Bess, at the local outlaw, he saw it for himself. He was in here last weekend. He told me all about it. So Valentine asked Gummer, who was the local mercenary, like I said, to take him out to meet this Ed Earl Bassett who lives in the wilderness. They go out and they find him in this old abandoned town. 
that was once occupied, but his the people have had to flee once uh, the trade routes kind of left there and Whitechapel grew bigger than them, so they had to just abandon their homes and leave. And there they meet Earl Bassett, who was the outlaw that he lived in that town as a kid, and everybody left or died, but he refused to leave, so he grew up and lived in this town by himself for years and years and years. After some convincing, they decide to all go out. Uh, Gumner, Valentine, Nestor, and they're all he heading out uh, with to fight to find the source of these tremors and these visions they've been having. And when they get out there, they find these big worm monsters with giant mouths that have been flying around, just eating people under the ground. You know, they live underneath the, the desert, so they're eating people. And they say, oh, my God, we got to fight off these monsters because they're going to destroy our town. So Nestor is killed in action by these monsters, and that kind of unites the team to realize this is a really important situation. we got to work together to stop these monsters. And there's one big final battle where they fight this queen tremor that's much bigger than them and has these sort of minions of tremors that follow her around. And finally, they're on the last straw. They're trying to fight this final tremor. And Outlaw, the Basset, uh, he sacrifices himself to save the town defeating the Tremor Queen in the last moments and dying on the ground in the town that he refused to go to. But Valentine returns to town at the last the end here and tells the sheriff that they aren't going to build the railroad after all because he knows that this is a dangerous, they do not want to disturb these monsters living out here, but he doesn't tell them that. The sheriff just thinks that they decided to move on. So in the, and then the final scene, Timothy Elephant's Hummer is taking the body of Earl Bassett out to his abandoned home and burying him where he once began. And that's Tremors. All right. Didn't expect a long Tremors pitch, but here we yeah. are. Yeah, unexpected. <laughs> Did I hear Timothy Oliphant's Hummer? Humner. Humner. Okay. I'm like, oh. how did he get a Hummer in the fucking 1800s? Okay. His, his name right. is Bert, Bert Gummer. Okay. Got it. All right. Uh, Bobby, do you got any questions right now? Um, I mean, I, I generally understand it. I guess for Tristan, it's just a little bit more, just kind of expand on the tone of your movie. Um, and then for Mason, uh, I guess just um, why would this be a movie that Tarantino would want to do? He doesn't really work with CG and effects so much with the, you know, the giant worms. Uh, but that's pretty much all I have. I, I get both movies. Yeah. All right. If you want to answer those questions. So for the tone of mine, I was trying to make it pretty fun. You know, you have Nick Cage in there. You have Timothy Oliphant who brings this sort of like charmy, he did the same thing in Deadwood. He's doing it now in Fargo. He plays these these sort of interesting Western figures who are very sharp and very witty. And I think he could bring that kind of fun to it. And Nick Cage, of course, is going to bring fun to anything. So I think you have an element of fun like in the first movie. But I think David Milch has gives it this little bit of a gritty look and this gritty tone that's sort of down to, down to earth in the settings and the locations, but they're facing these big, crazy monsters that make it kind of fun and exciting. You're seeing these Western tropes against these big, like B-movie style monsters, and I think that's really fun. Uh, for for myself, why would Tarantino want to direct it? It's pretty much like a movie made for him. He loves westerns. We've seen what he what he's done with uh, Hateful Eight, Django Unchained. So it's right down his alley there. And in terms of a horror comedy, Tremors, the the original Tremors, is not scary like pretty much in any way, but it is a lot of fun, and Tarantino always brings fun, lots of blood. You know that the Tremors would have would have a field day with some people's limbs and fountains of blood, things that Tarantino would love doing. And another thing he does great 
is have these really intense long scenes that you know like are staples of his like the milk scene in Inglorious, the dinner scene in Django, like those scenes, that type of intensity added to a uh, like a horror style movie, he can do that better than than anybody can while still keeping the general tone fun and and actiony like like he can do. Also, when it comes to to music, especially in westerns with Ennio Morricone, bless his soul, he always finds a way to pull a character out of the music, and I think he could also bring that addition to this. All right. My cast is also, sorry, my cast is like all these like superstars. I have like Brad Pitt, George Clooney, Julianne Moore, and Kurt Russell, and they're going up against Nick Cage and Pauly Shore. So it's like. All right, I'll let, I'll let you guys fight it out in a second. But Mason, my question for you is Kurt Russell's character, is that his character from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or is it just a new No, Kurt it's, it's his character from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay. He's on the run for killing his wife. So that's why he finally bonded with Cliff Booth. They're, they're in a secluded town of perfection, Nevada. All right. And then Tristan, my question for you is more of a longer question because I just, I guess when it comes to you guys fighting each other, I'm going to need you to defend your casting more because it felt like your movie was more serious with the, like Timothy Oliphant and then the guy from Deadwood is like writing and directing. But then you also have like Nicolas Cage and Polly Shore in there. And I'm just not sure those two tones blend well for me so i'm just i guess i need you to defend that and then we'll, and then you guys can battle each other all right well i'll say timothy oliphant is a funny actor he's funny because he's so serious but you see him in fargo right now you see even in deadwood deadwood was kind of funny it had like a lot of comedic relief it had a lot of fun interaction between the characters so i think david milch and timothy oliphant both could work in that middle ground of of comedy and horror and you know he's on fargo which is pretty much that it's like this it's this mix of comedy versus super serious versus all kinds of different tones so i think if timothy oliphant can fit into that world he could fit into this world and i think he offsets people like nick cage because he would be so grounded and so almost silent compared to nick cage who would be you know nick cage he'd be big and he'd be fun and i think those two dynamics would play off each other really well all right i get that all right you guys can fight each other all right, so I'll say first off, the, the, Nick, the Nick Cage part is the part that really concerns me more than anything. If anyone's seen anything Nick Cage has done semi-recently, especially that movie, the, the, one, the one where he's like fucking a ghost of a daughter inside of him. He's completely off of his rocker. He doesn't have it anymore. I, and I feel like you don't need to make a movie like Tremors which is about giant worms attacking people in the in the West. I don't think you need to make it bigger than that. You don't want to risk breaking, like, going too far, like almost breaking the fourth wall of silliness. You still want the movie to feel grounded or it's going to lose the intensity that makes Tremors special and fun. You know, it would break the fourth wall would be bringing in characters from different movies that aren't even part of Tremors and saying, oh, look, here's a crossover with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, that's a different movie. Oh, it... This is so weird and ridiculous. Cliff Booth is out here fighting people. He's not even close to the age of wanting to fight people. He's I don't, so old. I don't think. I don't think it's that much of a stretch. Stretch. Cliff Booth. You saw the way he fit onto Spawn Ranch. He looked great on Spawn Ranch. Just take him there and move it to a place that's a little more isolated. It's the same guy. It fits in the timeline. Tremors takes place a little after the events of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's a great character. 
and based off the rules, we got to include a, a movie, a character from a different movie in a new movie. And I think this one is a way that it actually seamlessly fits in without com- being too completely jarring. And I also don't think Tarantino would be down to do this. Like, I don't think he'd want to do this big, splashy, like, B-horror movie type stuff. He's in for more bigger stuff, more serious stuff. Even if it's fun, he's still serious. Like, Django is fun, but it has serious themes and serious tones to it. And I don't think... Even Hateful Eight was a very serious movie. And you seen Kill Bill? Kill Bill is fun and crazy, but that it's not it's not a horror movie with giant space where I'm attacking people. Yeah. But he's more than capable of making a B movie. He just makes a B movie into an A movie. And that's why it's not going to just remake Tremors. It's going to make Tremors better than the original. Whereas yours kind of takes off the quality by bringing in a lesser cast, Nick Cage versus Kevin Bacon. I'll take Kevin Bacon every day. Pauly Shore. I don't see why he needs, why he needs to be there. He's not going to have a very big role here. Timothy Oliphant I like. Ian McShane I like, and setting it in the 1800s I like. That part I like. But I just think there's, there's too many things to distract away from the movie that people won't be able to get immersed into it. I don't think any of that that's distracting is bringing characters in from other movies. And I think that Nick Cage is a great choice for this because, sure, a lot of his big releases haven't been huge hits, but he has been doing really good in B-movie horror movies, in Color Out of Space, in Mom and Dad, in Mandy. He has this reviving career where he's in these crazy stylistic B-horror movies where he goes off the rails, but st- he knows how to lean into, his, lean into his tropes and lean into who he is and get a great performance out of it. And people really, really are happy with his new direction as a, in a career, these B-horror movies he's doing on Shudder. You know, and this is something that I could see him loving to do because he's been doing right, great. I'll say Nic- Nicholas Cage fits in Tremors. Does anyone have any other points they want to bring up? I think yeah. mine is interesting because it takes place in the 1870s. It leans into the Old West, and I think you have this idea of the expanding railroad, and I think no. that gives them a reason to set up these tremors and why would this guy from out of town be coming into this small town, and I think it adds a sort of through line of a theme there, which I think is what's missing from the Tarantino one. Like, sure, it's a big, it's a big fun, like, Tarantino action movie, but it's not saying anything. It's not saying anything at all. And Tarantino always tries to say stuff. You know, he tries to comment on race. He tries to comment on all kinds of things. And this is just going to be like, oh, Tarantino, big splashy blood, sure. But like, Kill Bill was a long time ago. And he's trying to do better stuff than that now. All right. I think I got my mind made up. Bobby, what, what are your thoughts right now? Um, I, I do like the idea of both movies. I think right now I'm, I'm leaning towards Mason. Uh, just because I think that it's a, I think Tarantino and those characters fit a really fun, different movie. Um, whereas I think Tristan stayed a little too close to the original Tremors as far as the tone with his casting. He, he updated it with, you know, a, more of a Western tone with modern Western characters and actors. But um, as far as something different, as someone who's not a huge fan of the original Tremors, I was more interested in Mason. I haven't seen it much, that's all. Yeah, it's weird I think because I, Mason prided himself on his being just like the original and not changing much of the core. All right. Yeah, but but the characters around it and the tone, I think, made it sound more interesting to me. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to agree with Bobby here. I feel like Mason sounded more, the plot sounded more interesting than just like 1800s Tremors, which is I feel like something they did in like Tremors Four as they went back to the old west and like a prequel. And I feel like Mason used his rule better. He, had, I feel like Brad Pitt as Cliff Booth fit his movie better. Andy was a main character where I still am not 100% sold, sold on 
Pauly Shore as the bartender in this movie. And yeah, I think I think Mason had the better better pitch, so I'm gonna go with Mason. And we also had some live comments as well. Oh shit. Yeah, we, we had a lot. We have Shaden H or uh, Cheyenne H, maybe Cheyenne in the in the comments just going off. So I'll I'll pick a few of them here. I'll start with Jordan though. <laughs> yeah, Jordan says thought Joe is just dropping the ball and hosting this podcast, but turns out I could hear him drop his phone from the living room. <laughs> All That's right. good stuff. Uh, Cheyenne says Mason is a winner. That's facts. Win round. Proven winner. Wow. Wow. And will be the winner. Wow. Yep. Is that Mason's count? Suck it. Oh, <laughs> all from yep. Cheyenne. So, yeah, Cheyenne sent a lot. There was one other one I was going to try to find just because I thought it was funny, but uh, he commented, or yeah. If I find it, I'll put it up there. But um, all right, all right. So can... uh, it's Tristan's pick. Tristan, where are we going? Let's go with uh, when a stranger calls. All right. All right. So when a stranger calls is uh, from 1979. It's at 41 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Wikipedia describes it as an American psychological horror film. The film derives its story from the classic folk legend of the babysitter and the man upstairs. The film has developed a large cult following over time because of the first 20 minutes, now consistently regarded as one of the scariest openings in movie history. Uh, the first 12 minutes of Wes Craven's Scream is an homage to the opening of When a Stranger Calls. And Tristan, who's going first? I'll go first. All right. So my Run of Stranger Calls is directed by Adam Wingard, who is known for Your Next and The Guest. And it's set during the COVID-19 pandemic. That's my rule use. So uh, the best and most memorable part of Run of Stranger Calls is that first, like you said, that first like 20 minutes, that's that opening sort of sequence there. It's actually based on a short film, which is pretty much just that first sequence. So everything else after that just kind of like added on to this original concept. So I'm going to condense my movie down to be more focused on that main premise of the babysitter who's in the house with this killer who's taunting her and has killed the children upstairs. And I think the pandemic adds to the movie a lot because we already feel trapped in our own homes. We feel kind of afraid of invaders, afraid of our neighbors. So I think that's a fear that manifests itself in the film. And I use a lot of modern connections to current events and to current culture and things like that that I think really ground it in the problems we're all facing right now as a, as a world, but as a country specifically. So a young woman, Jill, who's played by Zendaya, she's babysitting for three young kids in their apartment during a long uh, weekend for the COVID-19 pandemic. Their mother is Emily Grant, who's played by Nev Campbell, uh, cameoing kind of as herself as the actress famous for being in Scream. She plays an ER nurse who works long nights during the COVID-19 pandemic and is an outspoken critic of the country's handling of the virus. This makes her the target of internet trolls and people who harass her who believe that the virus is fake and that she's making it all up. And Jill is a college student who can't find work, so she's taking jobs as a babysitter. And uh, she's also working as a cam girl, doing video live chats for tips. <laughs> so we see her with the children trying to keep them entertained by the TV, reminding them to wash their hands and feeding them dinner and helping keep them clean and away from this virus, all while she tries to attend virtual online classes. And she's quick to change the channel and send the kids to bed when there's breaking news of a clash between police and protesters nearby. After the children go to bed, she begins a camp session where she's working for tips 
and getting uh, harassed by members of the audience. Uh, one member in particular says, have you checked the children? And continues to harassing, harass her and message her across various platforms. Uh, so she tries to block him. She tries to cut, cut him out, but he keeps making new accounts. He keeps finding her again and again. So eventually she has to call the police. And they're dismissive, saying, we'll look into it, but it might take us a few days. It's not really our problem. She's frustrated by this guy who's constantly harassing her, constantly sending her this message, have you checked the children, making her feel uncomfortable in this dark room by herself. The house is not even hers. So she's frustrated and asks her audience of fans if anyone can help. And several really quickly volunteer to help trace the IP of the accounts. So they quickly message her back and say that the IP is from the stalker who's using the same IP address as her. So the messages are coming from inside the house. Jill calls Emily, the mother, and tells her somebody's in the house. She's freaking out, and she's going up to check the kids. Emily is distraught and says she'll call the police and get home right away and reminds her to check the children. Jill goes to the kitchen, grabs a big old knife, and heads up to the children's bedroom, slowly checking every corner and hallway as she goes. She reaches their bedroom to find the kids are dead, suffocated with medical masks placed over their dead faces, with black ink reading hoax, liar, and sheep over each of the masks. A laptop sits on the table logged into what was her cam chat, still running downstairs against the empty living room. Except it's not empty. There's a masked figure walking through the shot in her living room. He approaches the camera and still waves before closing the laptop and cutting off the stream. Jill runs out of the room and down towards the living room. The killer's right there, face to face with her. They get in a little brief fight. Jill gets a bloody nose before she flees out of the house and the killer follows her. She enters the street to see a large protest marching down the street outside of the apartment, uh, filled with Black Lives Matter activists and counter-protesters from Proud Boys who were standing there, uh, standing back and standing by. <laughs> Topical. It's been a long week. <laughs> Jill tries to approach the line of police officers, but they roughly shove her to the ground and move on to the rest of the protesters. Jill is dazed and disoriented from hitting her head, and she returns home and locks the door. She runs around the house, blocking doors, blocking windows, trying to make sure that Jill, Jill can't get back in. She's trying to call Emily. There's no answer. She's really scared now. And there's a huge crash up in the window of the childhood bedroom. Uh, the killer has returned. And he's in the final clash with uh, Jill, who takes a big beating, but finally fights him off, knocks him over the head, and strangles him. He lays on the floor of the children's bedroom next to their beds. Jill goes downstairs to meet Emily and the police as they arrive, but she's immediately arrested. She yells that it wasn't her, that the real criminal is upstairs, but the police don't believe her. They, they bring her out to the car as the police go to check the children's bedroom to find that the killer is nowhere in sight. The police don't believe Jill's story and are convinced that she's guilty of the killings. That's my pitch. All right. Mason, you got a lot to compete with there. What's your... Jesus, Jesus Christ. Okay, so the first two movies we picked are kind of like the ones where I don't have the longest pitches, and I feel like he's really just like whipping out his big, big pitch on me right now and just like... I, I kind of feel like size inferiority right now, but nevertheless, I'm gonna gonna give you my. Hey, it's, it's, it's not the size; it's how you use it. You know. Okay, great. So I used a, a rule in a great way. So when a stranger calls is like, is like a meh movie, and like it's like a it's a it's a it's a tired premise, the baby babysitter, wah wah wah. But how do we make it fun for audiences? Well, we give them what they want, and we cast. Harry Potter actors. That's the rule that I, I went with in this one. So we've got Jill Johnson, played by the lovely Emma Watson. 
babysitting Kenneth Branagh's children when, you know, she gets the call, blah, 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 have you checked the children? And, you know, Emma Watson goes up and the children have been killed. Who did it? Nobody but Rupert Grint. Rupert Grint. Ron has killed the children. All right. Fast forward into the, into the future. Uh, we've got Detective John Clifford on the case, hired by Kenneth Branagh. He's played by Gary Oldman, because we know Gary Oldman is great at police work. Shout out Commissioner Gordon. He slides right in. He goes on the hunt. Um, he tries to do the whole... If you watch the original movie, he gets a girl from a bar to try to lure him. We're going to get a Cho Chang, Katie Lung. Is Emma Watson a cam girl? There's some sites, deep fakes. Um, and uh, later on in, in the movie, uh, when uh, Emma Watson's all grown up and married, now we see her out at dinner, and she's having dinner with her husband, Daniel Radcliffe. We've all wanted this for a long time. Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson together on screen. No one likes Ron. Rupert Grint is a murderer. The movie, uh, the movie ends with, uh, instead of uh, in the original, uh, the murderer, Kurt Duncan, leaves Emma Watson's husband, uh, or Jill's husband, unconscious in the uh, closet. In this one, we get to watch Rupert Grint strangle Daniel Radcliffe to death in a fight for uh, Emma Watson's soul. And in the end, uh, John Cleese, because he's nearly headless Nick. He was in Harry Potter. He, uh, he shows up as another detective to help Gary Oldman. And eventually they, they, they track down Ron and, and, and they catch him. But the most important part of this is that we get to watch Ron and Ron be a murderer and Harry and uh, Hermione be together. All right. I have a heavy favorite right now. Um, yeah. Bobby, what are your thoughts? Uh, I do too. I don't know if you want me to show my hand right now. but uh, yeah, you can. Uh, right now, I feel like yeah. this is going to be a short debate. Yeah, I think Tristan sounded way more interesting to me. I think Mason's was just the same movie, but with the Harry Potter actors. That's correct. Uh, which, which is, um, it's it's crowd-pleasing to a few people, but I don't know if that would be something that people would rush out to see. So that's kind of where I'm leaning now. All right. Uh, my first question is to Tristan. Tristan, can you explain what a cam girl is for people that may be unaware? So a cam girl is someone who does live chats either on something like OnlyFans, something like like Twitch. There's a lot of people like that who have to sell premium memberships where people can watch girls or men be seductive and flirty and low dress online, and they'll get tips or they'll get they'll get sent you know whatever they set the price to. They'll either they'll get tips from viewers to chat with them and flirt with them and be be. Naked. All right. I, think, I think you've explained it well enough. I think you understand it. I, I think that's the classiest way I've ever hear, heard someone explain cam girls. <laughs> All right. And Mason, my question yeah. for you is, I'm yeah. someone who prefers Ron and Hermione together over Harry and Hermione because I feel like Harry and Hermione together is just like classic overused, oh, it's the most famous guy in the movie with the hot girl of the movie. Like, I like the idea that it's like this kind of plucky young guy, like plucky guy that gets with the girl. That's more interesting to me. So defend your entire movie to me as someone who prefers Ron and Hermione over Harry and Hermione. Well, you can prefer Ron. Like nobody's perfect, right? But for the general movie-going audience, this this is this is what they've been wanting for a long time now. Yeah, if, I, if, I feel like if, you're wrong. If yeah, if I actually think the general audience. Ron, yeah. If you're a person who thinks Ron that. and Hermione should be together, then you'll be happy to see Ron 
kill Harry uh, to try to to try to earn favor with uh, Jill. You know, you're gonna get to have that right. that yeah. that sense you've always wanted. Like I, I I know some people have always thought, oh, I like Ron more than Harry. He's a more interesting character. Well, now you get to see him fucking kill Harry and even better. I, yeah, but I don't want to see that. So Mason, I'm gonna need you to say three bad things about Tristan's pitch, um, or else you lose. And even I, if you do, you're probably still gonna lose. Yeah, well, I I like the cam girl stuff. That sounds good. That sounds fun. It's a unique. Okay, that's uh, a positive. I, I I got my mind made up. You guys yeah, no, can do it if you want to. This is a blowout. To yeah, me. I think his is much much better. But <laughs> yeah, all right. So this it. is my this is my ruling. The first one took the first pitch took too long. I'm just gonna go. Tristan gets the point here. I, yeah. I, there's no defense. Everything no. about Mason's I didn't yeah, like, and the more Tristan kept talking, I liked his idea okay. and his pitch more and more. My, yeah, I agree. My movie was the same movie, which is with a different cast. I, I, I didn't also agree that uh, Harry and Hermione should not have been up together. Yeah. So I didn't even write down a director for that movie because I knew <laughs> I would lose, and I didn't want to waste the director I liked. So. All right. So. Uh... Mason, uh, what movie were you going with? And he's going first. Uh, okay, we can go. Let's go Psycho. Yeah, we also have a bunch of uh, random live comments. Uh, there's All right, like, yeah, there's throw out one. some of the good ones. Or like throw up some of the good ones. All right, I got to go up here. We got a, a celebrity in the house here. <laughs> John Fricky, now <laughs> I know. Oh, <laughs> Papa. So that wig is ridiculous. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a, it's a great wig. You know, there, there's history with this wig. And then Jordan says, John Fricky in the house. Yep. <laughs> and then there's just a lot of conversations. The Cheyenne's just commenting on every sentence it looks like, which is helpful. Please do that. Keep doing that. Uh, yeah. It's just hard to put. Keep up with the live comments. Um, but yeah, uh, that's those are some highlights. All right. And uh, you go, Mason, you said psycho. And who's going first? Uh, I'm going to go first. All right. So I'll give a little background on Psycho. It's uh, got a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. It came out in 1960. Uh, Wikipedia describes it as an American psychological horror thriller film produced and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. The film centers on the encounter between a female embezzler on the run, Marion Crane, and Norman Bates, the shy proprietor of a secluded old motel and its aftermath. Nice. Nice. Nicely done, Joe. That was well said. All right. Uh, so, up. Shut your mouth. All right. So this film, my, my Psycho remake, is directed by Robert Eggers and takes place on Pitcairn Island. Don't know if you guys know what Pitcairn Island is, but it's the like smallest recognized like country or something some there's a there's a word for it it's got a population of 67 people and it's in the south pacific far far away from everywhere else it's it's a bunch of former white uh like pirates children or something there's a whole lore behind it but the film takes place on pitcairn island it's a real place and on this island there is limited internet access and gerald the island's chief oligarch controls who gets internet and when gerald is bedridden with a sickness and his son thomas played by bill skarsgård is his mouthpiece for the island gerald although sick is a former sailor and is generally loved by all on the island and is known for his kindness now marion played by florence Pugh, 
and Sam, played by Dylan Minette, play travelers, a young couple that have come to Pitcairn for a four-month field study on the island. However, only one month into their stay, news starts to spread of the COVID-19 outbreak. So that's the rule for my movie, is that it had to be set during the COVID-19 pandemic. So Marion, played by Florence Pugh, wishes to leave the island and return to her family. She's got elderly parents that she feels are at risk and wants to go home. So Thomas, Gerald's son, is initially saddened by the news as he's become slightly attracted to Marion over the first month. Now, the island will have to arrange a boat to come and pick up the travelers because they don't really have any boats that can safely navigate the waters to the mainland because it's thousands of kilometers. However, Gerald denies their request to leave as he does not want the outbreak to come to the island. So Marion overhears Thomas get in a loud argument with Gerald saying that he really wants to get Marion home because he's semi-attracted to her and just he wants to please her even if it means she's going to leave. So Marion appreciates this kindness and even though they don't get off the island, her and Thomas start to get closer. Now, Dylan Minette's character starts to sense something is off between Florence and Thomas. And when he's questioned it, he's threatened by Thomas. So soon after, Dylan, feeling Thomas's grip on Marion growing, decides to flee the island. But when he goes to the, the small boat that they do have, he's murdered by an old bearded man who we can only assume is Gerald. Now, after the island discovered, discovers uh, Dylan Minette's corpse, they go into a panic. Rightfully so. Thomas tries to comfort everyone and to comfort Florence. But during this, he tries to make a move on her, which probably not the right time. And she rejects. And she says she demands Thomas take her to the mainland, no matter what Gerald says. So reluctantly, he agrees. And so when they're sailing away from Pitcairn Island, only when the island has fully disappeared in the horizon, does Thomas's split personality of Gerald start to come out and she realizes she is trapped on the boat with a psychopath. The final shot of the movie cuts to Gerald back on Pitcairn Island in his house, in his bed, lying there in his sailor's uniform. And we see his name tag, Gerald Bates. The end. All right. I'm, I'm, and it's directed I'm, oh. by Robert Eggers. Did I mention that? What, what, what else did Robert Eggers direct? I'm sorry. The oh, Lighthouse yeah. okay. Witch. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I got you. I got you. Definitely right, Lighthouse. Tristan, Tristan, what do you uh, have for your... My Psycho, it was written and directed by Osgood Perkins. He uh, directed The Black Coach's Daughter, a Netflix movie called The Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. He's a up-and-coming, really growing uh, sort of indie horror actor, and he's also, by the way, the son of Anthony Perkins. So I think that family connection would be a really interesting way to bring the audience in and sort of validate this is a passing down the torch because Anthony Perkins directed a couple, directed the last movie of psycho and he was in all the, all the movies. So I think this family connection would be interesting. My cast is Margot Robbie is Marion Crane. Penn uh, Badgley who played the bad guy on Netflix is you. He's Norman Bates. Uh, Regina King is Diana Bloom. And Jessica Lang is the mother, Norma Bates. I'll get into my rule a little bit as I go down here. So we start in a thick forest. A wolf walks through the trees and a gunshot rings out. The wolf collapses. An unseen figure with long blonde hair approaches the wolf, the wolf, 
grabs it and begins to slowly drag it away into the woods. Cut to Phoenix. We start with Marion Crane, an overworked receptionist at a health insurance company. She went she with her fiance, Diana Bloom, played by Regina King, in a broken down apartment. They're broke. Diana is behind on paying rent. Marion's underpaid at her insurance job. Marion's convinced that if she works hard enough for this company, she'll eventually get the respect she deserves and be promoted to sales. Diana is on her way to Seattle at night to visit her family. Marion arrives back to work to a boss who complained she was gone too long. He says, you think these salesmen take hour long breaks? And she says, I was barely gone 30 minutes. And he says, well, there's no need to get so emotional, ma'am. She received a threatening and angry call from an irate man who's been denied coverage and is now up to his ass in debt with medical bills. Marion sympathizes with the old man, but there's nothing she can do. She's only a receptionist. The man threatens Marion anyway, telling her to watch her back. Her boss then meets with a rich owner of a pharmaceutical company who flirts with Marion and uh, is coming to pay the owner in cash. The owner takes the cash away in a box into his office. Marion's convinced that the pharmaceutical company is paying off her employer to make prices up or make make the prices of the pharmaceuticals go up. So working later that night, Marion sees an opportunity to steal the money. She takes the box and goes on the run to help Diana pay their debts and hopefully live better lives. She takes the box and calls the fiance, telling him she's on her way to meet her in Seattle after all. As she's driving, she's pulled over by a police officer, but he's more protective than suspicious. He tells her it's not a safe place for a young woman like her to be out this late, especially with a storm coming. So the rain starts and she pulls over at nothing else but the Bates Motel set behind the forest you saw in the opening scene. She meets Norman Bates, who, like I said, is played by Penn Badgley from You. He's a shy but attractive young man. Uh, he relates to Marion because they're both receptionists who feel unfulfilled, and Norman tells her he kind of aspired to leave this town and go somewhere else to maybe live in a big city. A big city. Uh, but he could never leave his mother, an old woman who lives in the house near the hotel. Marion heads to her room, and she sees a stuffed wolf on the display. A wolf, the wolf from the opening scene. She calls Diana on her uh, on a Zoom call, and talks her talks to her about the hotel, a little bit about Norman and the couple. The couple sort of playfully undress, and we cut. We, we slowly pan over to see Norman speaking through, watching them in a pee hole. In the house, Norman's arguing with his mother, uh, Norma, played by Jessica Lange. She's a chain-smoking, angry woman with long blonde hair who berates Norman for having a pretty young woman at the hotel. And we see a few scenes throughout of this in this first half hour of them, of her berating him and them fighting. And the next morning, Marion is awoken early by a gunshot. She heads out to the forest to see Norman with a rifle who just shot a deer. He notices Marion and ushers her over. He explains that all the taxidermy in the hotel is from animals he and his mother killed. Norman explains that hunting makes him feel powerful and that men are natural hunters. They stand over the dying deer and Marion is surprised to see that it's still alive, gasping for breath despite bleeding out. Norman draws a large knife, approaches Marion from behind, and then hands it to her. He, she takes the knife and he slowly tells her and he tells her to kill the deer herself. She slowly approaches the deer and kills it. We return to the horse we turn to the house where uh, Norma is now confronting Norman. She's angry that he brought Marion out on their hunting, said that was just for us, and says, I'm going to go make her leave right now. And Marion, uh, I mean, Norma grabs the knife from Norman and makes her way to the hotel. She moves slowly to the hotel room and approaches the shower curtain. We switch to the point of view here of Marion in the shower. She sees a shadow coming along on the shower curtain, 
it, it's pulled open and it's Norman with a knife. He murders Marion, standing over her dead body, cold and heartless. And suddenly he shifts. Now he's yelling at his mother for killing Marion herself and crying over her dead body. He then grabs her by the shoulders and drags her out of the hotel. Swap to Seattle, Washington. Diana is now a new main character. Uh, she's concerned because her fiance has yet to arrive and isn't answering the phone. Law enforcement's not taking her seriously, so she enlists someone that used to be a detective but was once sent to prison for killing a suspect. And that, that person is Brad Pitt's David Mills from Seven. That's my rule. I'm using Brad Pitt in a movie. And David Mills is now an alcoholic PI who's dealing with PTSD over his experiences in the movie Seven. He's initially hesitant and doesn't want to get involved with the case, especially somewhere so far away. But when he sees a picture of Marion with her blonde hair, he's reminded of his wife from Seven, who was who obviously he found her head in the box at the end. Spoiler alert. What the uh, fuck? Donnie and Mills, they team up, drive out to baseball hotel and investigate the murder. Or they're pulled over by the same cop who pulled over Marion, but this time he's very suspicious of Diana and makes her get out of the car and church her, but then eventually lets her move on the way once she sees that Mills is with her. So they reach Bates Motel and Norman is stuffing the deer that, that Marion killed. And now that we know the reality that the mother is Norman, we see these scenes get more kind of kind of psych like a into his mind into his psychosis. We're seeing we're hearing Norman's voice in his head, we're seeing her appear place she shouldn't be at. Sort of like Tyler Durden at the end of Fight Club or uh, uh, Dexter's father in the show Dexter sort of there on his shoulder talking to him. And meanwhile, Diana and Mills do a local investigation. Mills goes into a town and Diana stays in the hotel. Mills visits a local bar to find out about the history of the Bates family. Norma died years ago when she was mauled by an animal in the woods. Norman's the one that found the body. The town feels bad for Norman uh, and feels like he's a loner who is sort of dealing with PTSD himself and regret in himself about something that he did when he was young. Meanwhile, Norma, uh, Norman and Diana meet. He's trying to lure her into the same charms he used on Marion, but it's not really working. She's playing along, but she's seeing through him. She's trying to get more information. And he shows her his taxidermy collection, tells him about his mother, and he's getting really bad vibes from this guy. So she's, she calls Mills, tells him that something's off, you got to come back. And then she searches the room and finds a little tiny bit of blood and the box of cash in Marion's room. So we get this sort of slasher finale where Mills is closing out of the house and Norma and Norman's in the house and Diana goes into the house to find him and everything's kind of closing in at the last second. Meanwhile, the police are on the way. So there's a slasher finale in the basement, which is Norman's, ta- which is Norman's taxidermy lab. They enter to see Marion but she's stuffed and posed in a room like a doll. And they see that Mary is not the only victim. There's dozens of young women, all blonde, stuffed as statues in the basement. They finally confronts this unhinged Norman Bates in this basement. Mills holds him at gunpoint and tells him that uh, they know about the mother's death. And Norman says, you don't know nothing about my mother. And eventually admits there that she wasn't mauled by animals. He shot her because she was so mean and loud. And he let her there to be mauled by animals so that it would look like an accident. Uh, behind, from the window there, you see the police sirens come through. Norman gets distracted. Diana grabs the rifle that he used and shoots Norma, shoots Norman in the back. He's lying on the ground, dying, calling out for his mother in his last moments. In the final scene of the police station, Mills tells the officers that he's the one that killed Norman, matching his history in, from seven of killing suspects. Diana leaves the police station 
being handed their possessions, including the full box of money. She leaves money in hand, ready to start a new life alone. And that's psycho. Right. Definitely my longest pitch, so we're out of the way. On well, that. I, I hope so. That's a yeah. four-hour movie, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is there I, I think I remember enough of it, you know. Yeah. I'm gonna say I, from no, now I, on, I, let's I, I, keep I, it I like understood three the minutes movie. And under. I gotta do yeah, three gotta minutes do. and under for pitches. That's yeah. gonna be my new rule. Copy but that was, it was a good movie, yeah, just a little long. Yeah. All right, so I think I understand both your pitches. Uh Bobby, do you have a question? I understand them both. I kind of just want to see him fight it. I'm leaning a certain direction, but I do like both movies. Yeah, I think uh, I think I'm leaning a certain. I'm gonna let you guys fight it out. All right. So I got a, I got a few points. Like, what was the name of the director? You said Osgood Perkins. Yeah. Okay. Well, he's he's not Anthony Perkins. It's like I don't want to see Stanley Kubrick's like great niece remake The Shining. It's not not a passing of the torch. I. I, I couldn't care less. I'd rather have like a, a, a high quality, capable director. I don't know who Osgood per- Perkins is. Maybe that's not me, but just he's because a great they have director, this, he's just because they Robert have Eggers. the same last the same name, cult of Robert a, Eggers. It's not a positive just because they're related. Is Black Coat's Daughter is a great movie. Also, just I thought your movie hit. Is done. I thought your movie hit a lot of the same like exact beats, kind of in a way that Psycho did. And when you're trying to like redo. Arguably one of the best movies of all time, probably considered by many the best horror movie of all time. You're you're you, you can't just copy what they've done, like the shower scene, stuff like that. You kind of have to branch away entirely because you're not going to do Hitchcock better than Hitchcock. So it's just going to be an inferior version if you're going to try to do it so similarly. And also the whole idea of, of Norman being like this, this hunter who's like men are the al- alpha male, like it kind of foreshadows that he's this, this like twisted killer. Whereas the original, it's so great because he seems like such like an innocent, timid kind of guy at first. So it's more of a, a twisted realization. You even hear that he would never hurt a fly, but now he's fucking slaughtering bears and mounting them on his wall. It seems like too much of a, of a leap for me and shouldn't mills also be in prison i know the justice system in the u.s isn't the greatest but he, like he shot the dude in the fucking head how how did he how did he get out and how is he working again well he's a cop you know he can <laughs> do whatever he wants is that, what we're, is that what we're just going with it <laughs> okay well that, that, that's, 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 yeah, that's 20 years that's, yeah okay fair enough fair enough 30 years since that movie came out fair enough but the rest the rest of my points then <laughs> Well, right, I think that Alan Brooks is a great director. I think he's done really good work. I think Black Coach's Daughter was a really good movie. I think he's he, he's coming up in the indie scene just like Eggers was. He's a little bit earlier on his career than Eggers is, but I think he has that same energy that Eggers has. And I don't think yours yours sounds like a good Robert Eggers movie, sure. But like I've seen The Lighthouse, I don't. This doesn't sound like Psycho to me. It sounds like you kind of took oh, there's a split personality. You know, someone's name is Bates, and you're just like oh, this is the same thing, but it's. It's not, it's not even close to Psycho. It's like such a totally different thing that I think anyone going into a Psycho remake would want to at least see the skeleton of what Psycho is. That's where the remake is supposed to be. Like you criticized me of taking similar beats to the original and doing them differently. Like that's called a remake. That's what they do. They take the skeleton of a core story and improve upon it and modernize it and change things to it. And I think that's what mine does. And I think yours is just a totally different movie that happens to be called psycho like maybe it would be a good psycho prequel or something but like this is not a psycho movie 
See, personally, for my movie, I, I, I don't want necessarily the audience to know going in that it is 100% a psycho, uh, a psycho remake. I would probably give it a different title, and then afterwards we would include it into the psycho cinematic universe. Because what's great about like a suspenseful horror movie with a twist is that you don't know the twist is coming. It's not nearly as satisfying when you go into it knowing and expecting this thing to happen. And then for you, it just happens. It's the same twist. Like it's not a satisfying feeling for the viewer where Robert Eggers can do these things where he, he just makes situations so, so twisted and creepy and gets such great performances out of his, out of his actors that you, a guy like Bill Skarsgård who's already creepy enough. Right. Like, but he, he can look and play innocent. Like you see these moments for Pennywise where he's very, very playful with the children, but you, you know, he has that, that thing behind him. It's like so much, so much more complexity to my story. I feel like where yours is just kind of uh, a copy and a rehash, but not as good. All right. I got my mind made up on this point. Is there any other points about either movie you guys want to make? Mine sounds better. <laughs> yes. Mason, do you have anything? Same the point. Uh, no, I don't have anything else to All add. All right, Bobby, do you have anything uh, you'd like to say? Uh, basically, I'm, my thoughts are um, with a classic movie like Psycho, I would rather see a twist on it. And I love Robert Eggers, and I think that's a better take to me. So I'm, I'm leaning towards Mason. Um, Tristan's is sounds like a good movie, but it's a little too much of the original Psycho for me. Yeah, I'm kind of leaning the same way. I feel like Tristan's is a lot of the same from what I from what I remember when I've seen Psycho. And his movie, it sounded very much the same of like, you find out like the twist is like, oh, Norman Bates is the mom and the mom's dead. It's like, I knew that already because I've seen the this comes in the end of Psycho. This comes in the first like 30 minutes. You already find out the twist. So you get that. So, oh, you thought you were ahead, but you're not. You're getting the full answer at the beginning. So then I, just, I feel like at that point, then I'm just seeing a lot of stuff I already knew. Like, it's like, I'm just seeing Norman Bates as Norma more. And I don't even know if I really need or want to see that. It's more all about the twist and where I feel like Mason still gives you a potential for a surprise twist. And I like the different take on it. We have a similar version. I mean, granted, it was a shot for shot. And I don't think Tristan's would be a shot for shot with the Gus Van Sant version. And no one really likes that version. So I think I'm going to have to go with Mason's alternate take on Psycho. And so he gets the point. All right. All right. And we, we have a lot of random live comments, but I have one I want to put up here. Ooh. Alex Cover says, and how many more wigs can I see you try on and if, if I pay? I'm you willing to pay as well. Start hey, a Patreon. You, you yeah. just got to get me motivated. There was motivation where someone said John Rambo couldn't be in a superhero movie, and I had to prove that John Rambo can be anywhere, even this hosting this podcast. So The fans want to see you put more on. I also kind of want to see you take more off. If that's hey, I am no cam well. girl. So. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> just trying to boost the ratings. You know, I think that would do great things. Yeah, until YouTube uh, takes us down, but, you know, we'll see. All right, Tristan, where, where are we going? Let's go with uh, Slenderman. All right, hold on a second. All right, as I said, I'm updating, yeah. doing what Johnny did last week of how each rule does. So I had to update that rule. So Slenderman, it, uh, and who's going first? Uh, Mason can go first. Mason, all right. Uh, Slenderman, 
It came out in 2018, got a whopping 8% on Rotten Tomatoes. Real stinker. Uh, Wikipedia describes it as an American supernatural horror film. The story centers on the character of Slenderman, who began as an internet meme created on an internet forum in 2009. Uh, the story centers on three young girls sum summoning Slenderman, a thin, unnaturally tall humanoid with a featureless head and face wearing a black suit. Uh, and they summon him after they believe he took their friend. And so what is your pitch on Slenderman? And don't also read your entire script. I'm not trying to be here all day. It's me first, so you don't have to worry about that. Uh, Slenderman, I'm pretty sure me and Tristan are going to pick the same role here. I'd be shocked if we didn't. Uh, I'm doing Slenderman directed by Guillermo del Toro. Solid choice. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I got... I got Ashley and uh, Bridget Smith, two sisters that live in Waukesha, Wisconsin. The two sisters live together with their adopted father, Stephen, played by J.K. Simmons. Oh, and the, for the two daughters, I got Julia Butters, the young chick from the young girl from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Brooklyn Prince from The Florida Project. So they're two sisters. Uh, and J.K. Simmons is the dad. So Stephen, the dad, is frequently drunk and abusive. And the only happy place the girls have is the land of Bethule, an imagined utopia that exists in the forest behind their rural home. In Bethule, there are centaurs and fairies and mythical creatures only the great Guillermo del Toro could even think of. So the young girls spend most of their days there in Bethule, but the creatures always make sure the girls are home before the sun goes down, as bad things happen at night. Now, one night when the girls are cleaning the dishes, Ashley breaks a plate. Stephen, the father, drags her off to a room, and we can only imagine the horrors that take place in there. After this, we see Ashley walk straight out of the house and into the forest at night, and that is where she first meets the Slender Man. If you played the Slender Man video games, it's the great little video game in the forest, so it's him in his natural habitat. Now, Bridget is horrified, the sister, when she realizes that her sister has gone to the forest, but she's too scared to search for her. And Ashley does not come back the next day. So the authorities search the forest but find no trace of her. And after a week of searching, the hunt is called off. Bridget goes to Bethuel to ask the beings if they know what happened to her sister. And they tell her that Slenderman has her now and it's too late for her. As Ashley is now gone, Bridget is the sister that's going to receive the brunt of the abuse from angry J.K. Simmons. As Ashley... Uh, oh, sorry. She... she Oh yeah, one night the abuse is so bad that Bridget runs off into the forest at, at night thinking it can't possibly be worse than what's inside the house. And she finds Ashley and Slenderman, but Ashley is different now. There's a deadness to her eyes. Initially horrified by both Slenderman and her sister, Bridget's mind is bent by Slenderman, who arms the two young girls with the courage to go stab Stephen to death, which they do. Now, if you know... It's the reason it's set in Waukesha, Wisconsin, is because two girls actually in Waukesha, Wisconsin, stabbed another person to death. Or not to death, it was an attempted murder, but they stabbed him a bunch of times because they claimed Slenderman told them to do it. So it's based in reality somewhat. Now, the film ends with the, the young girls being sent to a foster home to live with many other children, leaving the land of Bethuel behind. But we see, as Archie Yates, that cute little chubby kid from Jojo Rabbit, uh, introduces himself to, the, to them. All we see is the deadness that remains behind the two young girls' eyes. Directed by Guillermo del Toro. 
Del Toro. This is Slender Man. All right. I'm interested. Uh, Tristan, what do you got? Yeah. Well, my Slender Man was also directed by Guillermo Del Toro. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what Del Toro does so well and kind of what Mason tried to get at in that pitch is that he brings in these sort of fantastical realities. But I also think he does gothic really well. So I think he could bring this sort of otherworldly Lovecraftian creature Slenderman into this gothic sort of style and tone because it's about these uh, high school students who are on a trip uh, with school to go out into the woods for camping. Uh, Elsie Fisher is Chloe. She's a social outcast who doesn't really have any friends, but she has an online podcast for true crime and horror. Karen Shipka plays Lucy. She's a popular cheerleader at Chloe's uh, school. She was her friend when they were kids. Jimmy Ray Taylor, who uh, is from It. He's Mike, who's a nerd in their class. Charlie Heaton uh, is Jay. He's uh, the photographer from Stranger Things, Jonathan. She plays Chloe's older brother, who is a washed-up stoner who works as a camp counselor. And Maya Hawk is Charlotte. She's also in Stranger Things. She plays a college student here who works as a camp counselor. And we have Doug Jones, the one and only, as Slenderman himself in a blend of practical and digital effects. So on this trip uh, with their class, Chloe and her friends and classmates come out into this woods and they start hearing these horror stories of Slenderman. And they start, and, and Chloe, of course, knows the internet. She knows folklore and says, that's just a myth. It's just an internet legend. It's not real. But late that first night, uh, they get scared and they decide to, for fun, go out into the woods and try and scare yeah. each other. And out in the woods, this group of people find this big Lovecraftian-style gothic mansion where they go inside. And, of course, in the lower Slenderman, there's this big mansion that he brings the children into. And I think that bring that into the movie to sort of tribute the lore that people know of Slenderman. And in these halls of this mansion, the children are going to come face-to-face and separated in these rooms and seeing their fears sort of realized in front of them in these, like I said, Lovecraftian sort of like otherworldly images that I think Del Toro could paint really well. And they're sort of facing their fears. And throughout this movie, the kids are learning to overcome and face their fears. And if they don't, they get caught by Slenderman. So they, they decide to fight against Slenderman by rebelling against their fears and uniting. And at the end, they try to unite against Slenderman. And he's so powerful, they can barely hold him off. But they get out of the house and run. And then they leave it behind. And as, as they leave, they see the house sort of just like fades off into the distance. And Slenderman's still out there somewhere, but they got away. And that's my pitch. All right. Uh, Bobby, do you have any thoughts? Um, so I'm a little torn because right now I feel like I'm a little bit more drawn to Mason's story, but I think that Tristan used the rule a little better. Um, as far as Guillermo del Toro, I, I I felt Guillermo del Toro a little bit more in his pitch, but um, I don't really have any questions. I just kind of want to hear him fight it out and kind of defend their choices. And yeah, you know. see, I, I'm torn, but for different reasons. So it'll be interesting. But yeah, I'm ready to see you. I'd like to defend the Guillermo del Toro aspect for me. I think it's very um, Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, I was inspired mostly by his work in Pan's Labyrinth. Like the reason I cho- chose him because I was thinking of the the pale man with the eyes and the hands. I'm like, this guy's going to create these fantastical creatures in a way that's going to make it so scary, but so like gritty and kind of wondrous at the same time. Like if there's anyone that can do monsters, it's, it's Guillermo del Toro. Like he, he captures fantasy almost better. I would say better than any, any working director right now. 
So the fact that there's a whole separate world where there's going to be so many fantastical beings and creatures is like really hitting onto his his strong points as opposed to just just having Slenderman. We have a whole litany of Guillermo del Toro beasts and animals and creatures. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So my argument here is that I tried to play close to the lore, but not really following it. I play tribute with the mansion. I pay tribute with the fact that Slenderman at his core is people facing their fears and people, especially you see shows like Marble Hornets that really like launch Slenderman into the internet conscience. Like people who face Slenderman get disoriented. They lose track of time. They lose track of space. They're kind of facing the fears that are past and their guilt. And I think you could bring that into this movie really well. And I think that's what Slenderman is about. It's not about fantastical creatures as much as it's about people facing their unimaginable nightmares come to life and and then somehow setting up against it. Well, I think you're describing my pitch is that there's an unimaginable, unimaginable nightmare in abusive J.K. Simmons. You saw him in Whiplash. Now imagine him 10 times worse and with young girls. It's They are living a horror. They, and that's, that, that's the, the, the twisted aspect of it is that Slenderman has to arm them with the courage to go and face their fears and confront this, this horror that they've been living in real life. So it kind of has the horror in two different aspects. You've got the, you've got Slenderman, which is terrifying in itself, but then you've got real life and how those things clash. And also in terms of, in terms of the lore, I don't know anything. I don't know much. I don't think many of the most of the movie going population is going to know much of Slenderman lore. I know, I know viral videos like PewDiePie playing Slenderman. I know, I know that terrible movie that they made last year. I know that it takes place in the woods, but I don't think hitting specific points like the house is really necessary. It's fine, but I don't think it's, it's that key of an ingredient. Whereas mine is, I can even put the beginning of the movie based off real events, based off these real killings that happened featuring two young girls that thought Slenderman was twisting their brain. I think it's too close to reality. When this movie came out in 2018, they were afraid to release it in places. They didn't release it anywhere in the state that this murder, or this tenth murder, took place in, and they censored a lot of the violence out of it. So I think the the real event is too close to reality. And I think no studio would make this because they're not trying to make a crazy Gamble the Toro isn't as cool, isn't this weird adventure based on actual people who are actually attack someone, and then someone who has to forever live with scars I, I, on their I face. I had the and... same concern. I had the same concern, but that's why I changed enough of it. It's not, they, they attacked another young girl. This way I, I created a villain that we can want to see attacked. We, we, there's enough, enough difference where it's, it's not like disrespectful to anyone in any circumstance, but still has some sort of basis in reality because a lot of the things that scare us are what feels real. So the fact that People know that Slenderman in real life technically has corrupted young people to see that kind of redone is going to, to scare people more. Right. I have my mind made up on this thing. I have a question for Tristan that I thought uh-huh. of. Uh, one of the things that we see present in Mason's pitch, and then there are th- it's a theme throughout a lot of Guillermo del Toro's movies, is that humanity is the monster. You know, We see it in Michael Shannon's character in... Uh, Shape of Water. Uh, Shape of Water. We see it in the stepdad's character in Pan's Labyrinth. Is there like a human character that's like the monster in your movie? Well, I think in my mind, when they face their fears, they're seeing fears from their life. They're seeing maybe their stepfather was abusive. They're seeing something they witnessed as a kid that that was some human 
terror that they faced, and that's their nightmare that they're facing. And I think Slenderman embodies that hu- deformed human form that's a nightmare. So I think Camel Horror has that human element, and I think that's what the people will be facing in these rooms. They'll face their fears of their past, the fears of their future, their fears of what they've done or experienced, and their guilt. And I think that's the human element there. All right. I, th- I think my mind's made up, unless you guys have another big point you want to drop. I'm All right. good. All right. I'm happy with mine. Bobby, you got anything you'd like to say? Uh, I'm. A, this was definitely tougher than the other ones for me. I'm. I. I think yeah. I'm leaning Mason right now, uh, just based on I think he defended the Guillermo del Toro concern I had initially, and I just am more drawn to his story. Um, but I could go either way. I do like both movies. Yeah, I agreed with. I disagreed with you at the beginning of uh, having a problem with Mason's being a Guillermo del Toro movie. I I felt like his was a Guillermo del Toro movie. I thought Tristan's was a Guillermo del Toro movie. Too, except for the fact that I didn't see the uh, like humanity as the monster, but he sold me on it at the end. And I feel like overall, I like like he has J.K. Simmons, and he has uh, the girl from the Florida Project, and so his cast is good. But overall, I think Tristan's cast, I like this cast better for this movie. And I just, and I think having it be so set in reality when that was the big problem with the original is it could be a problem for that movie. And I feel like I want to go with Tristan's pitch. So I'm going to say Tristan gets the point, but it's super close. Yeah, that was the closest one. I, that was like a, that was like 51 49 for me. Yeah. But same. yeah, I see that. Wow. Me also. I'm boycotting. <laughs> uh, but, right. but for We're real, uh, I'm going to have to switch to my laptop. So. My phone's like down to like ten percent, unfortunately. All right, Mason, what what, what do you want to go with? And uh, so I'll read the rules while you switch over. Cool. Um, or I'll read the. Uh, let's go with Paranormal Activity. Paranormal Activity, okay. Yeah, I probably could go for a bit longer, but I just don't want to like cut out in the middle of a yeah. sentence. No. So yeah, you're I'll, fine. I'll be right, I'll I, be I right got some stuff I can talk about. All right, so I'll, right. Right. I'll be right back. All right. Um. Paranormal Activity. Let's see. It's uh, representing the 2000s. It came out in 2007. It got an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Wikipedia says it's an American supernatural horror film. It centers on a young couple, Katie Featherston, and uh, played by Katie Featherston and Micah Slope, who are haunted by a supernatural presence in their home. Uh, they then set up a camera to document what is haunting them. The film utilizes found footage conventions that were mirrored in the later films of the series. It is known as being the most profitable film ever made based on the return of investment. Paramount acquired the movie for $350,000 and it made $193 million worldwide. And uh, Tristan, or, uh, Mason, can you hear me? Uh, I'm just joining from my laptop. Hold on. All right, yeah, Bobby's going to have to pull you in, so I'm just going to wait. But what I can do is hype up next week. So next week we got two people, Tristan and Mason, may be familiar with. We have uh, Zach versus Darren next week, Wednesday at 7. The theme is movies that won Worst Picture at the Razzie Awards. Uh, What are you guys feeling? Yeah, that one wasn't picked. Who who are you guys feeling for next week, Zach or uh, Darren? 
I'm, I prefer Zach's taste in film, but I don't know how <laughs> well each of them are going to argue their points. So we'll see. I could see Darian doing pretty good, but yeah. I'm curious because Johnny is the uh, Johnny is the consulting judge next week, or he's one of the judges next week. Or yeah, so what we're going to do next week too is also we're going to have a three judge panel, and so all you have to do is sway two of the three judges. You don't need. There's not like going to be a main judge and consulting judge. All three judges are going to have equal number of power. The judges are going to be me, Bobby, and uh, Johnny. Johnny, not a big fan of Zack Snyder, and I feel like Darren is going to have Zack Snyder direct one of his movies, so I'll see how that plays out. And uh, Bobby, he is uh, in on his laptop if you want to switch him from being in on the phone to the laptop. Oh, all right, let's see. How's it going? Long time no see, everybody. All right, and uh, I read the rules for parent, or I read the description for paranormal activity. Who's going to go first, Mason? Uh, fuck it, let him go first. All right, Tristan, what's your paranormal activity? All right, so my paranormal activity is with the cast of Grown Ups. <laughs> paranormal activity has been done to death. There's like seven of them now, and there's how many countless ripoffs that do the same thing. So I think the best way to do this is to make it a horror comedy and really lead into the comedy, make it almost like a, a parody level of a comedy. I think Adam Sandler recently has been doing these good, better movies than normal, like Murder Mystery and things like that, that are direct parodies of things. And I think he could he could do pretty good with a direct parody of of Paranormal Activity. In my cast here, we have uh, Adam Sandler as the dad, Selma Hayek as the mom, Chris Rock is their neighbor, and Kevin James is their other neighbor. And when the mom and dad hear strange noises in the house, they decide to bring in their friends to set up cameras and and check it out because they're convinced that there's going to be paranormal activity and they're going to get the footage and sell it for cash and be rich. So they set up this, the cameras all around. They use webcams. They use connects. They use GoPros. They use all kinds of stuff that they can find in the garages and prop them up on like tape together sticks and things like that. It's not at all a professional setup, but they're filming this movie to try and catch paranormal activity on camera. And of course there is paranormal activity. They're being haunted by some demonic force that's insisting on taking the house back. And we have a few good running jokes here. Chris Rock is a dad and there's always a running joke in horror movies that the black guy's going to die first. So of course he has narrow escapes, but he never dies. He's the one that survives all the way to the end. And I think Kevin James as their nosy neighbor is pretty interesting. I can see him playing that really well. He has that sort of fun personality. I can see him nagging them as they go along the way and getting scared by all the crazy stuff. And I think these characters could play off each other really well. And I think that you could get some really fun. We'd be following the same sort of beats of horror movie. You know, they hear the scares. They don't know where they're coming from. They check the cameras. It gets increasingly weird and increasingly weird. And it's just a comedy. You can make it really, 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 really weird. And stuff is happening where, you know, chairs are flying all over the place. And the dad's still like, I don't know. It doesn't seem like paranormal to me. And you could do that kind of parody tongue in cheek thing. And I think Adam Sandler could pull it off well. So that's my pitch. Right. Can I ask real quick, who's your director? Do you have one? Uh, I, th- I figured it'd be the director of Grown Ups. I thought we had to use like the same everything, so it'll be Dennis oh, yeah, doing yeah, it for Grown Ups. Okay, that's fine. Mason, what's your... Uh... All right, so I have paranormal activity set in space is my rule. Okay. Now, my cast, I feel like it's very, very important for found footage movies of any kind. 
especially like paranormal activity to have no name actors. So no one, no, no one, anyone's ever heard of. It's kind of important for found footage movies to, even though we know it's a movie to have that, that element that this could be real. This, this footage crash landed to earth. This is found. This was what happened. Yada, yada. So set aboard the international space station. One day, suddenly all communications go out. Now, initially the tension is driven by this and the group desperately trying to reestablish calm. So all footage comes from on board the ISS, either from mounted cameras or those big, goofy, clunky camcorder-looking things that they have. Now, initially, things start to malfunction, and things go from bad to worse as people are launched out of airlocks. The oxygen supplies start depleting, and someone thinks that there's a saboteur on board. Countries start to lose tr trust in one another. Americans, Russians, the Chinese, they're all clashing on board the ship until eventually the crew starts to realize they're dealing with something otherworldly. Now, you, you see the typical paranormal activity. Things get worse and worse. The, the demonic possession starts escalating, and people die one by one until eventually someone is able to take the one escape pod and take it back to Earth, and the film ends with uh, the person interviewing them as they crash land their pod into the ocean, and they get out, and they are interviewing CNN, and then you can see that the demon has come to earth. The man you can tell is possessed. Bum, 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 bum. Faithful paranormal activity style, whereas... Okay, no, yeah, I'm not, I'll save the fighting for the fighting part. Sorry. All right, Bobby, uh, any thoughts before the... Any questions? Uh, I don't really have any questions. Um, I have a preference, but I get yeah. both movies. Yes, uh, I, I just kind of want to hear him fight it out. Yeah, I don't really have any questions. I Oh, Mason, I asked uh, Tristan oh. the same question. Who's your director? Dan Trachtenberg. He's shown his capability with 10 Cloverfield Lane of creating suspense in tiny, okay. tiny places, such as the downstairs bunker there. So oh, yeah, I think yeah. he, would, he would do a good job. All right. Yeah, I don't really have any further questions. I just want to see you guys fight each other. I don't think paranormal activity should be set in space. I think that's where the thing is. I think that's where all these other horror movies are. And I think you said in space, it just feels like Cloverfield Paradox. It feels like the thing is not set in space. Just because your remake that you're going to say is well, it will be set in space in a few minutes. Spoilers. Not surprising though. Yeah. No, I I know that the. That was what I was gonna do, but it just felt like too too easy. So I, I put Paranormal Activity. You didn't make Paranormal Activity. You made like Marlon Wayne's Haunted House Four. Like it's it's not Paranormal Activity in any way. It's like a, a goofy, silly comedy. It's not it's not gonna be a comedy horror. You can't have Kevin James and Adam Sandler and and all those guys be taken seriously in a demonic possession movie. It's just not it's just not going to work. You've made a You've made a comedy and probably a pretty, pretty bad one. Well, I think I did make it a comedy. I think I made it a good one. And I think you could infuse a horror in there a lot. I think that all of those actors have done more serious performances. You know, Adam Sandler is being praised up and down for uh, the one he just did with the Safety Brothers. And what really makes your movie a paranormal activity movie besides the title? Like the it doesn't, demon in the house, the hidden cameras. Everything in there is paranormal activity. A family doesn't believe it, but ghosts believe it over the course of stealing more footage and a demon in the house possessing, possessing people. It's it's all paranormal activity. Uh, it feels far too campy to me. That the, the, do you remember the original paranormal activity, like the reactions that theaters got when 
it was like the first time since Blair Witch that we'd really felt something like that. Like it was truly, truly scary. And I feel like on the International Space Station, like that's an opportunity. It's so claustrophobic. You really get to capture that fear again that the sequels for Paranormal Activity have kind of been missing out on as they've tried to get bigger in scope. This is in space, but it's smaller in scope. It's so confined and trapped that it's really going to bring up the tension, whereas yours just lets all, all tension go out the window. I think we've seen more than enough, like, passable fun footage movies, and I don't really need more of them. Like, we've seen ripoffs of Paranormal Activity in space. We've seen ripoffs of Paranormal Activity underground. We've seen Paranormal Activity set, you know, in a farm, probably. Everyone tries to go for these hidden footage. Oh, I found aliens. Oh, I did a party at my house. Oh, it's turned into a horror. I found a superhero. There's enough, like, mediocre, passable found footage horror movies. There's not enough movies or haunted houses. I think there's like four haunted house movies. Why, what, what's the difference? It's the same movie. Those are found footage comedies with shitty actors as well. I think th these are good actors, actors that could pull it off. Adam Sandler has been doing good in his direct parodies. He doesn't do good when he goes off and does these like blue comedy Jack and Jill things. He's good this when he makes jokes more like, like Jack and Jill than it does Uncut Gems. You're going to get bad Sandler, not good Sandler in this. Well, I had these cast of grown-ups too, so you're not looking for like amazing performances. You're looking for comedic performances that are going to be enjoyably funny and bring in the tropes of paranormal activity to that. Uh, I get that you had to use the grown-ups. I have my mind made up on the use of the grown-ups cast. Is yeah. there any other? I just don't think this was the right right place to use the grown-ups cast. I think paranormal activity has to be no-name actors. It's like part of what makes found footage movies fun is that it's found footage, not a Hollywood remake. That's the whole point. All right. Does anyone have anything else? I like right. Tristan's shirt. All right. <laughs> Bobby, do you have any final thoughts about this pitch? Uh, yeah, I, I think, again, I'm leaning towards Mason. Um, I, 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 the one takedown that I had in my head right away that Mason brought up is those the Wayans movies, those parodies, those terrible haunted house and all those. And that's what I pictured with Tristan's. Because um, when Adam Sandler does comedy lately, it's been terrible. Um, I know like murder mystery was a little better, but it wasn't great. So I, I, I like the idea of setting it in space. Uh, I think that fits the franchise. I think it would take it in a different direction. Um, even though it's a little close to Cloverfield paradox, which was terrible. Um, it, it does sound better to me. Uh, yeah, I agree with Bobby. I think my main problem, he's, he, he sold me for on it a little bit, Tristan, but it never got fully to where Mason's was because when Mason was pitching his movie, I completely saw it as a movie. If they were like, hey, new paranormal activity, ISS, and like the trailer was what he described, I would actually be interested in seeing it because I haven't really ever been interested in a paranormal activity movie. His movie sounds interesting to me. I really like the idea of setting it on the ISS. I feel like it's a believable movie that can be made. And so, yeah, Mason gets the point here. And I think Mason's at match point. If he wins another point, yeah. he wins the he wins the game. So Tristan's on the ropes. And uh, so where are we going, Tristan? And who's going first? Let's go with. Hmm. I'm going to say the blob. <laughs> wow. And nice. Mason can go first on that. Oh, All right. Man. So the blob. It got a 66 percent on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, which is never really accurate because any movie that came out like years and years and years before Rotten Tomatoes existed, they're never really close to where they should be. So 66% doesn't mean anything for this movie. 
Uh, Wikipedia describes it as a science fiction horror film starring Steve McQueen in his feature film debut. The storyline concerns a growing corrosive alien, um, amoeboidal and an entity that crashes to Earth from outer space inside a meteorite. It devours and dissolves citizens in the communities of Phoenixville and Downington Town, Pennsylvania. A growing, larger, redder, and more aggressive each time it does so, eventually becoming larger than a building. So Mason, what is your version of the blob? Okay. Uh, first time I saw the blob was in, in film class a couple of years ago, and it's not great. It's nothing special, but I think there's a lot of opportunity to make it Fun. So I decided to cast the grown-ups. That's the rule I use. Cast the grown-ups in the blob. So uh, the movie begins similarly to the original, with a meteor crashing to Earth, this time behind a trailer park. We see one of the occupants of the trailer park start to wake up as he hears the crash, and it is none other than Rob Schneider playing Rob Schneider. He grumpily goes to investigate, poking the meteor with a stick when goo attaches to his arm and he lets out an eerie scream. Cut to a Hollywood studio lot. We see Adam Sandler, Kevin James, Chris Rock, David Spade, Steve Buscemi on set for the filming of Grown Ups 3. Whatever scene they are filming is horrible. After they cut, Adam is told by his assistant that Rob Schneider is waiting for him in his trailer. Adam seems annoyed that Rob was let past security because clearly Rob Schneider has fallen out of favor with society. He's living in a trailer park and some sort of scandal must have occurred. Adam meets with Rob in his trailer and something's clearly off about Rob. The two get into an argument and right as Adam tries to leave, Rob reaches out and grabs his arm. Slowly, he begins to absorb Adam Sandler into his own body and becomes much larger Rob Schneider. Now, without Adam, production halts on Grown Ups 3, and the world begins to search for him. The authorities know that the last person he was seen with was Rob Schneider, so they go to check out Rob Schneider's trailer park, as it's his known residence. Now, at the trailer park, it's an eerie scene. There's no human or animal left. It appears they all have vanished. The only thing they notice are footprints the size of buses. The rest of the movie we see one by one, the cast of the grown-ups start to disappear until only Steve Buscemi remains. Now Rob Schneider has grown to the size of a two-story building and Steve Buscemi joins the fight against him. Nukes aren't working, guns aren't working, but Steve Buscemi used to be a helicopter pilot for forest fires. So he organizes a plan and they get a bunch of helicopters and they pick up evil giant Rob Schneider, the blob, and drop him into the Antarctic, faithful to the resolution of the classic 1950s film. Rob Schneider is Rob Schneider in The Blob. All right, and before Kristen starts, can I ask you a quick question of how you explain the visuals of a guy with shoe prints the size of buses, yet he is only two stories tall? Ten stories tall, very big. However, okay. Big, I was gonna say I don't think the scale quite works that way. Yeah, he's uh, so right. big that the nuclear weapons are are not working. That's how big this. He's Godzilla. All right, he's fucking huge. All right, that or maybe his proportion. His proportions are just <laughs> off now, just because of that. Like giant yeah. feet. Who knows? All right, Tristan, uh, you're up with your version of the blob. All right. Well, my the blob is called the blob in space. 
because uh, it's set in space. That's my use of the rule. And it's directed by James Gunn. So we're going for sort of that fun tone, but also violent that James Gunn can bring into his movies, like in Super and things like that. And my cast here is Rain Wilson as a nerd who is on the ship. Ellen Page as like a rebellious kind of delinquent. Chris Pratt as a womanizer on the ship. And John Cena as a big buff jock. The people are locked on a remote trip to Mars that's setting to be the first human colonization of Mars. They've been handpicked by the Mars X flight team to be part of these first wave of humans that are going to be heading out to Mars. But on the way when they get there, a surprising meteor that they hadn't seen on their charts comes close and damages the ship. And the crew goes out and tries to fix the damage. And as they're fixing it up, they see this small little blob of goo sort of oozing out of the damage. And they think, oh, look at this cute little blob. They think it's it's at least going to be something that we can study for science. So they, they put it in, a, in like a container and they bring it into the lab. And as they're experimenting on it, the blob breaks out of the lab container and infects the doctor. So the doctor becomes absorbed into this blob that's sort of growing and deforming in shape and slowly oozing its way through the halls of the ship, eating people and eating things one by one and growing and growing and starting to crush the walls of this ship and close it on people. So we see these characters having to work together because they're people who are not supposed to be in space. They're just humans who were sort of picked to be on this flight and suddenly they're having to work together, understand a spaceship and fight this big, massive growing blob while they're fighting also against each other, trying to fight for leadership, but eventually, you know, having to work together to fight the blob and stop the ship from crashing. And the last scene, you see them landing on Mars, but you don't, but you see a little tiny hint of maybe the blobs on the ship Mars and it's about to infect the whole planet. That's my pitch. All right. Bobby, any uh, thoughts or comments? Um, so mostly for, for Masons, I want, again, I, I like seeing tone of the movies and I couldn't quite tell cause it sounded very serious, but then you have the, the cast of the grownups. Um, I just kind of want to get a general sense of tone. Uh, and for Tristan, it's more of, um, I really do like the pitch, but it does, it sounds very similar to life and to a Cloverfield paradox, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, so how's it going to differentiate itself from like those kind of contained horror movies on a space station? I'll go first and I'll say, I think James Gunn's style can set that apart. I think, if anything, James Gunn can take something that seems kind of worn, like, oh, a team of superheroes go on an adventure and he'll make it really fun and exciting. He'll take, oh, a guy becomes a superhero and he'll make that really kind of fun and exciting and being a totally new take to it. He's even going to take something that kind of failed, like the Suicide Squad that didn't really go over well with people. And he's going to take that and put his style to it and make it even better than it's ever been before. So I think James Gunn can take, sure, this kind of premise to have done before, but I think putting James Gunn's behind it, his his skill, his talent, his his bringing the celebrity director, I think that could make these actually good because it wouldn't be like some Netflix bait, like 10 Cloverfield Paradox. It wouldn't be some like, I don't know, B-movie like, like life. It would be something that they're investing in and that they're really putting a creative director into. So I think it can make it good. Okay, yeah. And uh, from, from the tone of my movie, uh, if I if I somehow led you to think that it was serious, I apologize. I'm going like 80% comedy, 20% horror. And that's why I didn't mention the director. The director is Drew Goddard, the oh, guy who did yeah. Cabin in the Woods. That makes sense. I think he can he can very well have those those elements of horror that we know and love, but still for the most part maintain the comedy. And this is really the only way to make 
the cast of the grownups work is to make them self-aware as the cast of the grownups because they don't work as actors, but they, they work as people, right? Every, Kevin James is likable. Adam Sandler is likable. Chris Rock is likable. Those movies aren't great, but they actually will have chemistry, chemistry together as people. And I think that this would actually give them a chance to showcase that when they're allowed to more be themselves. And in terms of this is going to sound crazy, but I feel like the stakes in Tristan's movies aren't, aren't as high as in mine, right? Sure, we might be losing Mars, but Mars is just a colony planet, whereas this is imagine if Rob Schneider took over Earth. That's not something nobody wants to see. It's the dystopian hellscape, so I feel like it's going to be even more intense. Okay, yeah. All right, and Mike, Mike, I have a question for Tristan, and it's basically, I don't know much about The Blob. I've never seen it. I was supposed to watch the trailer before this episode, but as with most things, I forgot. Uh, <laughs> and one of the things I know about The Blob is, like, you see it walking in the city. Am I wrong on that? Or? Rolling, it, I would say. It's, 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 it's in the original, it's just like a ball of goo. It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't walk, it doesn't have, it doesn't have legs. But it, like, goes through a city, right? Yeah, it goes through a city. It throws buttons around. It does all sorts. All right. Yeah. So crazy. my question for Tristan is: Does your movie have anything like that? Well, they'll be going through this big ship, so you can have a really iconic scenes where they're coming through like the engine. They're charging towards the engine. They got to stop it, and it's getting bigger and bigger. Okay. And you can see that it's coming through a hallway and expanding the hallway, and as it's going down, I think that gives it a scale of like scope in right, even, yeah. even a right. small place. I respect that. All right. Yeah, I want to see you guys fight it out, unless Bobby has anything. I'll no, good. I'm good. Right, yeah, I just Yeah. Well, I think you gave yourself points last time for using the rule creatively, and now you're not. So I think you get to be called up for that. Putting the grown-ups cast in the blob is like the most obvious choice of the list. Like, oh, the one that's a goofy '50s movie. Let's put the comedians in it. And that was what I initially thought. And then I realized, well, I could do something actually interesting instead of just making a goofy B movie into another goofy B movie. And the reason, the reason, the reason that in this case the choice is obvious is because it's the correct one. Like the blob is a silly premise in the first place. It's 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 nonsensical. It's a it's a ridiculous movie. You 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 watch the original, which I think I'm the only one here who has. But you watch that one. It's it's so so dumb. It's like it's it's just a silly silly movie. And I think nothing says dumb like the cast of the grown up. I think that they. They fit the idea of the blob better. But I didn't just make it like simply put the grown-ups in the blob. You know, I changed the very idea of the blob instead of just it being this big ball of goo, which I feel like just isn't that interesting on screen anymore. I think it's been done. You see it in, in Stranger Things. You just see goo moving and absorbing things like this is Rob Schneider. If he touches you, you become more Rob Schneider. Rob Schneider growing and growing and growing I think is more interesting. And I think, like we said in my pitch before, these people are not good anymore. Like, they're not funny anymore. And I think if you put them all in a room together, they're just not going to be funny. They've never been funny in, in 10 years. They just make the same kind of jokes. And I think that, sure, it'll be a big Rob Schneider. But, like, if you put that in a bad movie, it's just going to be even worse. Like, this is going to be something that becomes a razzie, becomes like something like the room. I, I, think, I, think, I think you're right that when, when these guys play characters – they're not great, but no one denies that Kevin James is a genuinely funny person, or Chris Rock is one of the best stand-up comedians of all time. Adam Sandler is very funny. These are all guys you put in the room. They're going to be funny, and they're getting a chance to actually play themselves, which is, I think, what people need to see is that these guys are actually talented comedians. 
they were talented comedians. So let's let them be that again. I mean, they play themselves in every movie already, so it's not even going to be a big change. For you, it sounds like Guardians of the Galaxy. John Cena is now, or Drax is now John Cena. Did you say you also had Chris Pratt? I did. You did. Okay, so it's it sounds just like what, what if what if Guardi- what if there was a blob on the ship of Guardians of the Galaxy? It's not it's not a, a fresh exciting take. We're, we've seen that combo actor director before, whereas I think this this would be something entirely new and unexpected for people to see. I think there's literally nothing like this that's similar to Guardians of the Galaxy except for Chris Pratt, and like that's not even similar. Like he can do all kinds of different things. He's playing a a womanizer in this, and, and Star Lord is not a womanizer. He's kind of a dweeb. He doesn't know what he's doing. You can't you can't kick a more to like him. You can't pick up. I don't up know if Star Lord is not a womanizer. You wake yeah, up. I'm gonna go with Star Lord's a womanizer. Yeah, I, I think that's like a whole the whole part of his. He's, character. he's Kirk from Star. He Kirk. tries to be a womanizer, but the joke is that he never works. We've seen Chris Pratt on a spaceship in Passengers. We've seen Chris Pratt on a patient uh, on a spaceship in Guardians of the Galaxy. It's it's how many spaceship Chris Pratt movies do we need? I think that having something new and exciting in the cinemas that really actually shouts out to the original Blob, which is set on Earth, a threat to humanity. This Blob that just grows and grows and grows, but has a more fun and exciting twist. Okay, sure. We've seen Chris Pratt and James Gunn do a space movie one other time, but I've seen well, this guy do awful comedies like so many times over and over and over. So if you want to talk about something, and that's new, why that's why Drew Goddard is important because he's an actual capable director that's known to make horror comedies very, very well. And I think we know that, like you said previously, Adam Sandler is a talented actor. I think he needs a good director, and that's why I paired him with Goddard. Is but it's I going think to actually all of them in a room together, they're just not going to be funny. You said earlier, oh, you get these guys. Yeah, right, you guys keep going over a lot of the same points. Yeah, I think hilarious. I have my mind made up unless you have like a big point bomb you want to drop on the other one. You good? I think we're good. good. Bobby, any final thoughts on this pitch? Uh, I mean, I'm relatively split. Um, I like both ideas. Um, I think because I really liked uh, – Goddard's other work I think I'm leaning a little bit towards Mason and that kind of parody I think that would work a little better with the grown-ups cast than Tristan's pitch the grown-ups cast but honestly I like both movies I could go either way um the so, grown-ups yeah. cast is a crutch that is a hard yeah. rule it's a really hard rule <laughs> I think you used it pretty yeah I think this rule is about to potentially yeah. be retired yeah but I mean not, I don't I like Tristan's it. movie sounds interesting it's just that I've seen multiple other movies with the same premise which is why I'm leaning Mason all right, yeah, you said you've seen uh, movies with uh, Tristan's premise, but also I like to hear Mason's pitch, and like I haven't seen a movie like that that I can remember, except it feels parodied as a bad movie and Big Fat Liar of, uh, of what's-his-face, uh, P from Remember the Titans, Donald Faison. Donald Faison's character walking around as a big character, and that just looked bad. And I don't know if making Rob Sh- a giant Rob Schneider walking around is not a movie I want to see. I think if you picked a different actor in that group, it would be more Kevin interesting. James but you took like arguably the least interesting and worst actor in that. That's why cast. he's the villain. Exactly my point. Yeah, and you made him the main character. No, basically. no, no. He's he's the enemy. You barely you barely get yeah. shot. Get hints at Rob Schneider. He's not the main. Uh, uh, um, the way you pitched your movie, it didn't sound that way. And Tristan's, while it's similar to maybe a life, 
or those other movies that has James Gunn, and I feel like it's going to give it a different tone. And Mason said something that kind of locked it up for me, and he's basically like, "How many? Something along the lines of like, do we need another James Gunn movie like this?" And my first thought was, "Yeah," because I'd watched this, and I don't really know if if they if I saw the trailer for each of your guys' movies, Tristan, I'd be interested in, and Mason's, I'd be like, "What the fuck is this?" So I think I have to give Tristan the point on this one. All right, that's fine. Yeah, it was very split for me. Like I. I don't mean to lean one way or the other. Like I feel like I've been leaning Mason a lot, but I, I really did like both of those. There's picks. nothing wrong with that. Follow your heart. <laughs> it was a good use of the rule. That's a tough rule yeah. to fit in any of these movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think uh, oh, yeah. Grown Ups is about to get retired. So That's a <laughs> tough one to win. you got to pitch it perfectly. Yeah, you got to have the right movie too. So uh, Mason, uh, what's your pick? For, or I guess we're down to one movie. What movie are we yeah, down Yeah, fuck me. Did we have to go to Game 7? Christ Almighty. I'm not one for for tense environments like this. I would have liked a nice oh, gentleman's thing. That's, that's a good one to come out to. Yeah, the thing's good. I forgot we, we, we you guys shortened the list of uh, movies, so I was like, oh, yeah, we're rolling out. Then I was like, oh, we're almost done. Yeah. Fat, down All right, yeah, so uh, Mason, who do you want to go first, uh, you or Tristan? Tristan. All right, Which so is the, our final movie is The Thing. It came out in 1982. Got an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Wikipedia describes it as an American science fiction horror film directed by John Carpenter. It's based on the 1938 John W. Campbell Jr. novella, Who Goes There? It tells the story of a group of American researchers in Antarctica who encounter the eponymous thing, a parasitic extraterrestrial life form that assimilates and imitates other organisms. The group is overcome by paranoia and conflict as they learn that they can no longer trust each other and that any one of them could be the thing. All right, Tristan, you're up. All right, well, my thing used the cast of Harry Potter, uh, and it tells the story of a, a team of scientists who are working on a distant lab in a fiery hot desert. They're testing uh, for nuclear energy and the effects that can have on bioorganisms. So they're applying like nuclear power to, you know, a microorganism, seeing what could happen to it. And they're out in this big desert, like the Manhattan Project, to be out in the middle of nowhere just in case there's a big nuclear explosion. So the scientists are doing a routine experiment, and the test goes awry, and the uh, the, the testing equipment explodes, and it floods the room full of nuclear energy. And all the scientists, they have, you know, like a 10-second timer to get out and seal the doors. And the scientists all make it out in time, but their dog doesn't. So they all stand watching through this door as the dog gets covered in radiation and seems to fall over. And they're, they're very sad thinking, oh, look at our pet. He was keeping his company out here in this desert. And then it kind of plops back up and it, it walks around fine. And they open up the door and the dog comes out and he seems good. They're checking out his health, his organs. They're saying, man, his heart's good. His, his, everything is good. His brain waves are fine. He looks, he looks perfectly fine. I don't understand. Nothing happened. So they're testing the radiation, trying to see what could have caused this, some kind of breakthrough. He's immune to nuclear energy. And slowly the dog begins to, similar to the first thing, we're going to have these intense effects that are a blend of practical and, and digital, because we can do a little bit more digital now than we could back then. But I think the, the best part of that movie is the effects and the practical effects. So I think you definitely have to have that back. And you have the doctor sort of eat, uh, getting eaten up by this thing and transforming into this body snatcher version of herself. I think I'd ever read the cast uh, if I had said Gary Oldman is a nuclear scientist. Daniel Radcliffe is a new blood biologist who just joined the team. Emma Watson is a doctor who's there to instruct uh, Daniel Radcliffe as he comes 
uh, into his new job. And the actress who plays Luna Lovegood is in this too, is, and she plays the uh, another doctor who's there studying the nuclear physicist side of this. So we, we have the dog hunting them down one by one and transforming them into these sort of body figure, body snatch prisons of themselves. And I think the the original thing in the 50s and also the, the John Carpenter remake were these sort of comments on political division. And the first one was about nuclear fear and I drew that in. So I think you can comment here on humanity's division. Like there's a lot of divisiveness in 2020. So I think each of these characters can represent different sorts of view, people of different political views, different people in different countries. And we're seeing them sort of competing with each other for for power and for attention as as they're trying to also work together to fight on against this thing. And similarly to the first one, we at the end see that Daniel Radcliffe is laying out in the outside of the base with uh, Emma Watson and they're thinking they're probably going to go boil to death in the sun, but they decide to work together and try and go find shelter and find a home. But like in the first one, we're kind of suspicious of maybe one of these people is still the thing. That's my pitch. All right. Mason, what's your Uh So one thing that I think is important for uh, the thing is the, the sense of isolation. The original one was in the Antarctic. I think they need to be kind of in their own contained environment where there's no escape to safety. And I tried to set mine in a, in a very creepy already place, the Louisiana Bayou. So my rule is that it had to include Polly Shore. So Polly Shore... Polly Shore is the uh, father of a family from New Jersey, and he wants to take his family on a wilderness retreat. Polly Shore's wife is played by Jennifer Connolly, and uh, as well in the family are their children, Alden Ehrenreich and Olivia Wilde. Okay? And uh, they're, they're going to the Louisiana Bayou to be uh, shown around by their, uh, their family. By, by, the, by a uh, Louisiana family that lives out on the swamps. And that family is made up of Lisa Emery from Ozark, Bruce Dern, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, and Paul Dano. So um, just uh, when they're there, a lightning strike happens and a tree falls across the river that they got in on their fan boat. So they're pretty much trapped in this little area. Now, during the big storm, the moonshining hut that the uh, Bayou people have set up also gets set ablaze, and we see a bunch of different chemicals all sorts all all start to mix, and that goes into the water and contaminates an alligator. So just like he has the uh, he has the dog in his pitch, I've got an alligator set set in mine. Uh, The director for my film is going to be the Duffer Brothers, and I think they do Supernatural very, very well, as well as fun and atmospheric, which I think this movie is going to have in like a unique kind of setting. So we're going to get to see, like Tristan said, I kind of wish I went first, the division as uh, rednecks from the South have to work with a progressive family that comes from Jersey. And uh, together they slowly start to be uh, picked off one by one by the alligator and they do the imitation thing and uh, we need a character to kind of explain away the science of all of it because he's got actual scientists so I've got uh, Olivia Wilde by the way is a biologist so she can kind of explain what's happening we've got 
one of the greatest scenes in the thing the uh is when they're they're burning the blood they're heating the blood to see because it reacts differently than like imitation blood and so that will be done over like an open fire real real country style everything's going to be in this dark, gloomy, marshy setting where there is no escape. That's that's my that's my pitch. All right, uh, Bobby, do you have any questions for them? Um, I mean, I get both movies. Uh, I just kind of want to get clarification on Mason's on how big of a role is Pauly Shore in the movie. So he's there's no real like main main character. I would say that Alden Ehrenreich and Olivia Wilde are going to carry the movie, but he he is the reason they're there. He's the, the the father, the patriarch of the family, the most outspoken of the family. They're 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 very Jersey, they're very Italian, but he's he's not my main character. I just don't find him to be the strongest of actors, and I feel like if we make him the lead, the movie suffers. Mm-hmm. But I still think he's a he's a decent enough character actor and can play that role well. That's exactly what I was looking to hear. So now I just yeah, I'm I'm just ready to hear him fight it out personally. All right. All right, I have a question for each of you. Tristan, my thing for you is you said your movie's going to have a lot of uh, division and have, like, political commentary and stuff about, like, both sides and, you know, show people all around the world. And yet you cast a lot of white British people. So I wanted to hear you explain that. Well, I think that her uh, Emma Watson is a very political uh, figure now. She does a lot of feminist speeches and a lot of really powerful speeches that I've really enjoyed. And I think that she could bring up an energy to this. And I think that making her sort of this feminist who's standing up in this, in this world, trying to take power from these men who are immediately asserting control. And she says, no, I'm, I'm going to be in control. I know what I'm talking about. And I think you can get these two people to have very different uh, views, even though they look similar. I think you get that they all have very different points of view. And I think you could have, a, div- a division there just sure they're all white people but i think that could even add to it where white people have these divisions even in our our own race of people and i think that's something that could be explored in a movie like this especially when you're using the cast of harry potter which is not exactly uh you know dark <laughs> there's maybe like one black person or two black people in like the entire cast of the harry potter movies so i think when you use noteworthy people out of that there cast, is people Cho Chang. Rusty Shacklebolt. <laughs> yeah. The and then my that? question for Tristan is you cast Polly Shore, uh the like I'm, the most I'm Mason. Whatever. Said, okay, got it. Just, who did I say? You said yeah, Tristan. this question for you. You okay, cast Polly Shore, who yeah. is basically Southern California personified. His mother is Mitzi Shore, who ran the comedy store in Los Angeles for years as a New Jerseyan. And then you went and made the character a like supposed to be like a super progressive character, which he's, I feel like would have fit California most... more. So why did you not make Polly Shore and his family from California instead of New Jersey? He's not the most uh Or what was the question? I, I have. I basically, why is Polly Shore in your movie from New Jersey and not California? When he oh, yeah, is so no, California, Polly Shore in the family. Polly Shore is not the most progressive one. It's more from the youth and a bit of the from from the mother. I should have should have said that. But uh, the reason I wanted to make it Jersey was I felt I, I thought about doing California, but I thought California is too environmentally similar to uh, the Louisiana warmth. 
And I really wanted it to feel like this family's been ripped out of their element and like stranded somewhere where they're not comfortable. I want it, they, they went from winter to this warm getaway in Louisiana. Like I want it to be somewhere far away from their comfort zone. And I think Polly Shore could, could easily play a New Jersey. All right. All right. Yeah. I heard what I needed to hear. I just want to hear you guys fight it out. I think my setting is a lot better. I think the the a lot of what makes the original thing so intense is that they're not just in an uncomfortable place. They're not just in somewhere that they wouldn't want to be. They're in somewhere that like people should not even be living. Like in the Arctic, people should not be out there. That's not somewhere that our species can survive. But for some reason, they need to stick this this base in the middle of the Arctic. And I think that's part of the movie. It comments on these people are fighting literally against the world around them in a place where they should not possibly be at. And I think in the desert, it's like that. But it's different, you know, it's, it's the opposite. You can be out there for 10 minutes and die from heat stroke. You're not supposed to be out in the death Valley of Arizona because humans are just not built to live there, but we still kind of force ourselves to live out in places like that. And I think that could be something that the thing, the setting really provides that use doesn't really. I, I, I don't think that I, I, I agree that the desert's an element, but I also think the, the deep, deep bayou is, is somewhere humans definitely should not be anywhere. You have to take a, fan boat to you should not be there's alligators and snakes and monsters living out there that really are a lot scarier in the first place than a dog could be uh, like i feel like it's 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 more absurd of a place to be and almost more more terrifying you think of like it was the setting for anaconda which some people like those movies some people don't i personally really find that type of environment to be scary you don't know what lurks under the water kind of thing i think it lends itself very well to horror I think yours is a place that could get out way easily. Like, sure, there is water, but, like, you can get a boat. You can walk somewhere that doesn't have water. And I think when you're in the desert, unless you're specifically being, like, airlifted by a helicopter, you're not going to get out of there alive no matter what you have with you. I feel I feel like it's a lot harder to escape deep, deep in the in the bayou. When I said that there was a storm that knocked down their, their one way in, that completely covered it with, with logs and trees, you can't just walk through a marsh. You can run on ground you can walk on ground you can drive a car on ground if you can't get through the waterway you are stuck and the only way to go anywhere is through the water and that's where the real horror comes out i also feel like my cast is awesome i feel like bruce dern and the chick from ozark lisa emery are great paul dano doesn't get enough credit and i think could be a really really interesting creepy kind of creepy southerner jeffrey dean morgan Alden Ehrenreich and Olivia Wilde. I think Alden Ehrenreich's awesome. Uh, I think people should get tattoos about movies that he's in. I think he's... Oh, yeah, they should. Oh, well, I didn't even realize. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I think it's just it's just got a superstar cast, and I think it's a very unique setting for a horror movie. There's not many set in there, whereas in the desert you've got, like, Hills Have Eyes. You've got various other things, whereas it's like the bayou itself is scary to me. Sure, sure, I get that. But I also think that mine adds to it with the nuclear energy as well, because I think that's something that would throw back to the 1950s thing, which was the core sort of debate of the 50s. It's like, oh, they're going to destroy us with nukes. What do we do about the nukes? And then that was what they used to to, to boost the, the thing from that movie. And I think bringing that into this movie would be an interesting way to connect it to these previous forms of the thing. And I think it just doesn't connect as much. The, the, the nuclear energy might have been the hot topic in the 50s, but it's it's not the hot topic now. And I know you said that yours is all about 
political things, but I think Joe made a great point that it's just all white people, whereas mine is about kind of north versus south, red versus blue, and America isn't is a clash. And I think mine has a lot more opportunity to see those things clash, but also work together as they try to solve the, the mystery that lies inside of the thing. I think nuclear energy is scary now too. Trump threatened not a couple of years ago to bomb fire and fury on North Korea and people for the first time in our whole lives were like, oh my God, are we going to go to nuclear war? And I think that's something that's still in the consciousness of, of the last four years of this country. I don't know. It, 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 I haven't seen it as a trending topic on Twitter for, for quite some time. But I, I, I think your movie is fine. I, I don't have anything problem, big problems with it. it. It seems similar to the original, similar setting. It, it seems like it, it would be good. But I just don't think it's fresh and newer. I think mine has a real opportunity to be something faithful to the original in the imitation, the, the, whole, the whole premise, but different in its execution. I think that's, that's where I, I like to see this movie shine. I'm also a fan of my casting choices. I think... <laughs> like we talked about before, you want to see these Harry Potter characters together once again. And I think these are the characters that everyone really cared about. I mean, Gary Oldman is a great actor, even inside and outside of Harry Potter. I think him at the front of this is going to give it a star power that any movie he's in would bring. And I think Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Watson, they both come very far in their careers and, and done some really interesting things in their careers. And I think having them come back now and more more experienced as actors in this different movie that's not anything like Harry Potter and gives them a chance to show off their performances. I think that would be a really fun thing for Harry Potter fans to see, especially when Harry Potter kind of sucks right now and we just want to see people you like from it. Chris, can I ask you a question real quick? Is mm -hmm. Rupert Grant in your movie? Uh, yes, it's, I have, I'll read the cast. I have Gary Oldman, Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Watson, uh, Luna Lovegood, and Rupert Grant. I could not remember the Luna Lovegood's name, but I just wrote Luna Lovegood. <laughs> What's Rupert Grant's role in it? He's he's like the he's the angry bombastic scientist because oh, we have Gary Oldman is like the leading nuclear scientist. Danny Radcliffe is the new blood. Emma Watson is this doctor who's there. She's been she's newer, but not as new as Daniel Radcliffe. And then we yeah. have Luna Lovegood and I mean Rupert Grant. I almost think it's too distracting to have Rupert Grant, Hermione, and. Harry all all together like I think there's a great I was going to go the opposite way actually I was going to say if Rupert Grant's not in your movie and your rule is use the cast of Harry Potter and you don't have one of the big three then that's going to be a big strike at, uh, against your well, if, you, if you're going you have to like get the main three I thought it was just use actors that have been I mean Harry it Potter. is but if the rule is use characters from Harry Potter or use actors from Harry Potter and you don't have one of the main three yeah, okay. actors in all fair, three fair. movies then I would say that's a pretty big strike against the use of the rule yeah do you guys have any Fair Do you guys enough. have any other main points you want to hit on? Because I think I have my mind made up, unless you guys. I'm happy with mine. I think it's more faithful to the original, and I think it is an interesting use of the rule. I think it would be fun to see those people back together again, so I'm happy with it. I think mm -hmm. uh, I think that mine is faithful to the original in premise, but not in execution. I think yours is too similar in ways with the, the dog being the animal, just as the dog was the animal in the 80s, I think having it done with scientists in a desert, just like the Antarctic is a desert. It seems like very similar as mine can do the same things, but in a fun and new way. All right. I like how I asked if you have anything new and you just reiterate a bunch of old stuff. Uh, Bobby. Talking uh, points, talking points, talking points. Joe. Yeah. Bobby, any final <laughs> thoughts on these pitches? 
Um, this again, just kind of like the last few is relatively 50, 50 for me. It could go either way. I know you said you had your mind made up. Um, I'm leaning a little bit more towards Tristan on this one actually, because of, I think using an ensemble cast, um, with the Harry Potter cast rule works really well for me and kind of not knowing maybe who could be the villain at the end kind of deal. Who's the thing. I, I think that works as, as far as the use of the rule kind of breaks the tie, but I really like both movies. Yeah, I think both movies are rather interesting. Uh, I really like both your cast. The main thing against Tristan is that I don't know if he defended it well enough. Uh, if he talked about the political aspect, and I understand something if you could, your cast um, can be all white, which is fine, and you still can have political aspects. The problem is he defended it with just like Emma Watson as like a feminism thing, but then you still have in mason's movie of the main scientist the one who knows the most an exposition in his movie is olivia wilde so you still have that aspect in his movie and i feel like tristan's or sorry mason's is more relevant to the times of red versus blue north versus south where tristan's i'm not sure like how relevant it is with nuclear energy that's like i've completely forgot that trump said that about north korea i think mason's cast is more interesting with Pauly Shore, Jennifer Connelly, uh, Alden Ehrenreich, you know, Jeffrey Dean Morgan. And I feel like his movie is more interesting and more modern. And it's while it varies from the 1982 version of the thing, it's still has the same bones. It's a movie I would recognize as the thing. And so I'm going to go with Mason's on this. And I guess, unfortunately, oh the old race streak continues. Let's go. Here we go again. Tristan, I have an idea for a match for you coming up. So, yeah, no, I that was really close. I actually did like both of those a yeah, lot. Yeah, it was. This was hard. The pro, the thing I was hoping for is Rupert Grant wasn't in his movie because that would completely seal it for me and that would make my mind make my mind up a lot easier. And when he said Rupert Grant was, I was like, crap. Now I have to think about this more. Yeah, no, because I yeah, because I I really liked Mason's answer on Polly Shore. Like, I really liked both those, but I was just kind of like if I was picturing the movies in my head. I was like picturing an ensemble cast and that kind of did it for me, but no, that those were both really good. And I couldn't yeah. even. This is hard. Yeah, so many of yours were like, right. <laughs> no, so no, many of no, yours were 50, 50 for me that it was, there was like, various uh, that I definitely would have picked Tristan's. And I, I think, I think for a lot of them, you guys did like <laughs> when, when a stranger calls might've been the most lopsided thing I, you might've had on your, on your show thus far. Yeah, you guys yeah. didn't even debate it for a second. <laughs> no, I heard the pitches, and I'm like, "There's nothing you can even debate about this that would make yeah, me let yeah. them pick Mason's pitch." The and Guillermo del Toro one, I was, I was kind of hurt you didn't pick me, but his was also very good and very Guillermo del Toro. -y. I thought there was lots of good ones out there. Yeah, I thought your take on The Shining was pretty interesting. I mean, uh, Psycho? Uh, Psycho was pretty interesting. Hey, thanks, Definitely man. Not that was my favorite I one. To, but I think it would be a really interesting take to see that direction with it, especially after The Lighthouse. It was almost like a like a slasher movie in by itself. That was my favorite pitch of the night, I think. Yeah, I, I, that was my favorite one that I did for myself. I would have been would have been crushed if you, if you knocked me out on Psycho. I might have just have to might have had to hang it up. Mm. Yeah, no, yeah. That, that was, those were really good. Are you guys sponsored by Corona? Should we try to make a sponsorship happen? We should be. I have a bunch yeah. of Corona stuff. There you go. What a delicious little beverage. Yeah, so I think that? 
What's happening it's next weird. week with the the Darren and, and, and Zach one? What's the what's the premise? Yeah, so next week is Darren versus Zach, and the movies are uh, movies that won Worst Picture at the Rams. Oh, yeah, right. yeah, okay, yeah, that'll, that'll be interesting, interesting for sure. Yeah. A lot of surprising ones too. Some that I like can't believe one that that were really good. In yeah. Hindsight. For sure. And I, I'm really excited for the new judging format personally, because we were split yeah. on like the last four. I feel like we yeah. both yeah, do yeah. one ways. Um, yeah. And I, I think that'll be interesting having three judges, three different opinions, you know. Three of, judges yeah. is good. Yeah, yeah. I feel like the last four ones, it was uh, whichever one was said first, Joe, <laughs> Joe would be like, uh, I'm actually leaning the other way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it happens. Uh, Bobby, do you have any uh, final thoughts? No, just I think that was a really competitive match. I really liked a lot of both both of your pitches. Um, it's clear both of you really like horror movies, um, and I really enjoyed it. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to a lot of these these themed episodes. I'm having a lot of fun with this. Yeah, uh, me too. Uh, Tristan, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, thanks for having me on again. Unfortunately, it was another loss, but I'm not giving up until I win because, like I said, a streak is only good once you beat it. So I'm I'm gonna beat it. I'm coming back. All right. I'm I'm surprised you haven't won yet. I thought you did a, did a fucking good job today. So I you must have been facing like Bobby or some some stud of of his, <laughs> his caliber. Yeah, um, I mean, my only one win is against Tristan, but you know, oh, really, yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, so my plan actually is I think we have two people, two new people next week and two new people the week after. And what I want to do is have the two losers of those two matches face each other and the two winners of those two matches face each other. And then the ultimate loser of that, who's going to be 0-2, I want to face Tristan. So somebody who is – so we have 0-2 versus 0-3 against each other, and one of them will get a win. And that's my plan. Uh, I like that. I have a question for everyone. Uh, since we said Slenderman as our movie for the 2010s, and we should we should pretend that movie never existed. What's your favorite recent horror movie, everyone? A Quiet Place. A it. Quiet Place. Okay. The Joe, same for you. It, it. The the Vavitch, Yeah. Okay. Mine. Yeah. It follows, but those are all all very good choices. I'm big yeah. fan of all of them. All right. Cool. All right. Yeah, I think uh, just, yeah, like, subscribe, comment, do all the things. I don't think we have any podcast reviews. So get off your lazy asses and review us on podcast form. Yeah, let's just that. There's it there. Give it that five that, stars. I think that's that's a wrap for, for the day. Thanks for having me on, guys. It's been a pleasure. Good fight, Tristan. See you guys. See you later. All right. All right. Yeah. Bobby, just anytime.